Hi, this is Denny O'Neill. This is Kevin Conroy, the voice of Batman. Hi, this is Bruce Tim. This is Brian Q. Miller. I'm Christy Mark. Hi, this is Dwayne Swierzynski. Hi, this is Gail Simone. I'm Lee Garbitton. This is Tara Strong, and you're listening to Batgirl to Oracle. Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaker. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, Boy Wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. Another story, something to get off my chest. My life gets kinda boring. Need something that I can confess. Till on my sleeves I stained red from all the truth that I've said. Come by it honestly, I swear. Thought you saw me wink, no, I've been on the brink. So tell me what you want to hear. I am your host for this momentous 100th episode, Stella, and this is Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast, episode 100 for May MMXV. Backroll to Oracle is brought to you by this public service announcement. You gonna wear that sissy thing? It's called a life jacket. Yeah, well, I don't need one. Prepare to come about! I guess you know you should have worn a life jacket. Accidents can happen, and a life jacket's good protection. Like seatbelts in a car or a motorcycle helmet. Now I know. I'm knowing is half the battle. The Transformers. Backroll the Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prices you may encounter are August Backroll number 43 and Gotham Academy number 9, both for $2.69. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out milehighcomics.com. Backroll the Oracle is a proud member of the Batman Universe family of podcasts. Hashtag TBU family. Well, here it is. The big one double 
oh if you've made it this far congratulations and thank you i've got a great lineup for this particular episode special guests galore a look back even a a little bit of a look forward and i just want to get into it of course it's a classic bto episode with reviews and everything like that but i just spice it up a little bit to make it a, a very extra special episode 100 before i welcome on the first guest before I welcome my first very special guest to review or help me review some of these Suicide Squad issues, I do want to go through a load of Suicide Squad issues that Babs does not appear in, but fill in the gap between where I left off with Suicide Squad number 38 and where I will be picking up with Suicide Squad number 48. So I didn't read read them, but I, I did skim through them and, and get an idea of storyline and, and things like that and, and pulled out what the most important parts were from these particular issues. So bear with me as I go through nearly 10 issues of Suicide Squad that Babs doesn't appear, but do set up circumstances and, in fact, the the status quo for the squad that Babs will be, spoiler, joining in just a few moments. First up is Suicide Squad number 39, Dead Issue. The Suicide Squad has been shut down, but that doesn't stop Amanda Waller from leading ex-members on a raid to destroy the LOA. And at the end of this particular issue, the leaders of the LOA are killed, and Amanda Waller is imprisoned. And she will stay there for a while, actually. Suicide Squad number 40, Ashes. Number 41, Embers. Number 42, Firefight. And number 43, Black Queen's Mate all comprise a four-issue arc called Phoenix Gambit, which reassembles a scattered Suicide Squad after a year of imprisonment for Amanda Waller. So there is a time skip between 39 and 40. She receives a presidential pardon, courtesy of Sarge Steele, as well as money in the bank and her old privileges concerning the use of imprisoned villains. This is done so that Waller can reassemble her squad and prevent a confrontation between American and Soviet forces and the war-torn country of Vlatava. As the Suicide Squad succeeds and finishes their mission, they go into a new direction, free from the government, as freelance operatives, per the terms negotiated by Waller. Under the leadership of Waller, who herself now also goes into the field as an operative, they are a mercenary squad open to the highest bidder. Ben is not really 100% in his mind in these particular issues. Uh, Ben and Mari are reunited since uh, issue 38 when they were separated and he ran away off into the rain. And they go to get Captain Boomerang on that deserted island that he was tossed on. He's a little loony, I guess, and has a beard as well. And Batman is a big player in this particular arc. So if you want to read up and, and see Batman's interactions with the wall... I I highly recommend this particular arc. Next is Suicide Squad number 44, Grave Matters. One hero falls and another rises in their place. Meanwhile, Captain Boomerang attends his mother's funeral and learns a secret about his past. So Ray Palmer is apparently dead, but Waller has another Adam working for her. We get Boomerang's backstory and origin along with his first interaction with The Flash. Suicide Squad number 45, The Jerusalem Serpent. Number 46, Choice of Evils, and number 47, Choice of Dooms, make up a three-issue arc called Serpent of Chaos, where Amanda Waller and the squad covertly sneak into Jerusalem, seeking to capture or kill Cobra. 
However, the squad's arrival is detected by the Hayoth, and their Masa liaison, Colonel Hakoen, takes Waller and Vixen into custody in order to show them that the Hayoth has already captured Cobra. Amanda figures out that Cobra allowed the Hayoth to capture him, but is unsure of why. Judith follows Vixen to a meeting with the Bronze Tiger and Ravon, critically wounds Vixen, and is nearly killed by the Bronze Tiger. Meanwhile, the Atom discovers Cobra's true plan all along was to corrupt Debuck, the Hayoth's AI team member. Cobra corrupted Debuck through a series of philosophical conversations about the nature of good and evil. Boy, does that sound familiar as per Batgirl versus Batgirl and the pages of Batgirl. He then attempts to use Debuck to start World War III. The day is saved by Rabin the team's cabalistic magician who has a lengthy conversation with Debuck about the true nature of good and evil, choice, and morality. Meanwhile, Ravan and Cobra have their final battle, which results in Ravan's supposed death via poisoning. And in this, as we end this particular story arc, Mari is seriously injured, Bronze Tiger still seems somewhat imbalanced, and Poison Ivy and Count Vertigo throughout this issue, or this story arc rather, have a romantic Trist, which actually deeply affects him. Well, that is leading up to where we are now. And now it's time to introduce my first very special co-host and guest. Okay, people, since this is episode 100, how fitting it is that I have this particular guest on. I interviewed him. He was my first interviewee for episode number 10. It is Brian Q. Miller. Hey, everybody. Hey, Stella. Thanks for having me back. Yes. Just what a pleasure to to have you on and talking about some Suicide Squad. You know, last time you were on, we talked mainly about Stephanie Brown because you were working on that book at the time. And I never actually asked you what your history with Barbara Gordon was. Do you have any stories with that or how you were first introduced to her? Um, I think for me... It was probably, uh, as with as with a lot of people, it was on the old Batman TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh, when I was very young. Um, I remember seeing because it was it was syndicated at that point uh, for me. So seeing her in however many episodes um, she was in of the Adam West show, and then I think there was probably a hole in there until uh, the animated series finally introduced her, and that's kind of where I picked back up with my knowledge of Barbara. Do you have a favorite incarnation of Barbara? Um, there have been so many. It's very, it's very hard to say because she's had such a long legacy, and so many different people have written her. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly, like like we'll talk about today, the kind of the Ostrander version of the Oracle stuff, I very right. much like. And there's there's some interesting stuff in there we can talk about too. And then uh, any time that uh, the lovely and talented Miss Gail Simone has had her under her uh, the might of her pen as well. I'm a big fan. But also of the, I mean, I think, you know, which goes to the most exposure I've had to her, it's the Bruce Timm stuff. I mean, it's the stuff in the animated series. Right. There was, there was a turn in there where I was like, I don't know about this when she started dating Bruce. That kind of, <laughs> that kind of happened. It was kind of icky a little bit. But yeah. that was kind of in between things and was in that... Um, that was it the was it the rise of the batwomen or which whichever straight to video mystery of the batwoman mystery of the batwoman yeah. yeah 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 where they kind of infer that and i'm like oh barbara that's a really bad decision um but it's okay for her to make bad decisions so <laughs> um and then yeah. and then i think one of my favorite incarnations of her period though is um commissioner barbara gordon in mm. batman beyond yes. when when she's on that end of her life um to me is you know and she's kind of filling her dad's shoes and she's lived through being a member of the bat family that um i, I find that that era for her 
uh, to be very compelling. So um, I think that might be the version of her that I was most deeply into. Yeah, I have to say I, I try to ignore any Barbara Bruce romances, and I try to think to myself, maybe this is out of canon, and I, I don't accept it as much. But then there's that. Have you ever read Thrill Killer? Uh, I have Elf not. I have okay. not. I have seen that figure <laughs> many times. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's pretty awesome. But yeah. uh, but no, that's that's one little stretch I haven't read. Yeah. So there's a little bit of a Bruce Babs romance in there because I just I don't like it. I I can't wrap my head around it. But have you read any? Because we're about to do Suicide Squad. Have you read any of of these Oracle appearances that are? I mean, this is pretty early on in her career as Oracle. Is this almost the first time that you've read something this far back? Um, I'd say I think yeah. I mean, definitely uh, that that run particularly wasn't necessarily on my. I came into I came into comics as I've talked about in other interviews very late because mm-hmm. um, I was in college. I think when um, when I kind of first started really being exposed to them because we didn't have a shop near where I was growing up. So there are giant pockets where if they weren't available in a trade by the time I started reading comics that I just didn't really get to. Um, so like here and there, I've read some of the Ostrander stuff. And then with what, um, with what we read for the, for the podcast today, um, I liked it quite a bit enough, enough so that I've got in my notes that like, it kind of makes me want to read more about what happened before this issue. So it did exactly what comics are supposed to do. Um, but especially with older ones too, I think that's I think it's awesome when that can happen. Now we didn't get to talk about this. I remember you're super busy, but with the killing joke, do you think that this is a fitting way for her to end up with what what she is now? John Ostrander actually popped on my show to talk about you know his repurposing of her character and, and said he just he and Kim just did not like how the killing joke ended and they wanted to make her useful again. So do you think that? his purpose was fulfilled here with, with what you read here today? Absolutely. I mean, I really, I really dug kind of the take, uh, kind of the post-trauma thing for her and just how they explored mm-hmm. it. From, a, from an objective standpoint, I think what's really interesting, and I don't know if this speaks to, because this is just conjecture, but kind of the mindset at the time of, of what was needed to be done with the character or what people in control felt wasn't needed to be done, but it's such a monumental thing to happen to her in The Killing Joke and then for a book that's not a bat title to pick up that thread and continue on with her um, like I can't imagine in a current environment something that major happening to to a major player and then having having you know no one from the Bat family involved with kind of with what she's going through and I guess I mean that speaks to her feeling alone and kind of pulling you know away from everyone else but at the same time how much more powerful would the stuff that's in the issues that we're going to talk about today have been if it had been you know Bruce oh, and yeah. Dick, you know, mm-hmm. kind of kind of the same. It's the same exact story beats, the exact same dilemma that she was faced with. You know, do I kill? Do I not kill? How do I how do I fight back and, and get back metaphorically on my feet? Um, and I can't help as as well as it was done. Just thinking what it might have been like if if the other two had been involved. Yeah, because it's very and, and we'll talk about this, but it's interesting that Amanda Waller takes that role. Yeah, for yeah, her. which is which is mm-hmm. great. Like it's and it's an interesting take on Waller um, in this too because it's it's in a period in Waller's life where she's kind of trying to do some quasi redemption yep. stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I thought it was all interesting, but can't help but wonder what it would have been like if uh, if the Bat family had been involved in recovery at this yeah. point. Well, yeah, let's just hop into it. First up is Suicide Squad number 48, In Control. The cover date is December 1990. Writers John Ostrander and Kim Yale. Artist Jeff Isherwood. Colorist Tim McCraw. 
The issue opens with Count Vertigo undergoing some detox at the Institute for Metahuman Studies. Simon Legrieve is only happy to help Amanda Waller, which is odd given the way he and Waller parted ways, but he respects her more after becoming leader of IMMS. Simon takes the opportunity to ask Waller why she let herself be imprisoned by Sarge Steele. She admits that she crossed the line and needed to pay a price, but she is thankful that she didn't have to serve her whole time. Simon then decides to call in a favor. It seems the new thinker, Cliff Carmichael, that we met back in Firestorm 98, hashtag the irredeemable shag, has gone bonkers, no surprise, and actually improved the thinker's helmet and can now control anyone within six feet. There's a bit of a change and it's ten feet later on. And now he's loose and he is after Oracle. At Gotham City, Thinker is closing in on a false address that Oracle let through when he is surrounded by a group of knife-wielding baddies, but Thinker uses his powers to tell them to kill each other, and they do. Back at IMMS, Simon explains how Oracle was involved, trying to set up a digital trap to catch Carmichael, but their machines lost track of Carmichael and they have no idea how to find Oracle. Waller thinks the only way to find them is actually using the Thinker's helmet. Meanwhile, at an appointment with a probable psychiatrist or therapist, Dr. Miller, Babs is reliving the events of the killing joke. The images come in her dreams, but the person at the door often changes to be her father, Batman, or herself as Batgirl in a very interestingly designed Batgirl outfit. She explains what she physically had to go through, and Dr. Miller wonders why Babs puts on a positive, perky Barbara act for her father. Babs explains that there is no point in making him feel more guilty than he already does, since he refused an officer on guard at his apartment in order to seem more accessible to the people. The doctor says she does blame her father and Batman, and wonders why Babs says she should have known better. Of course, Babs closes up and says that some secrets are just not hers to tell. As she travels to the elevator, we see her doubts and worries, as well as the physical difficulties she must go through. She knows she is getting flustered because of Thinker coming after her. Back at IMMS, Simon warns Amanda about the helmet and that it will amplify her worst traits. She puts on the helmet and is witness to Oracle and Thinker duking it out in Atari space, as I call it. Amanda comes out of the cyberspace and tells Simon that Carmichael is furious with the trap Oracle set. He has put together a list of addresses that she gets equipment shipped to and is tracking her down. She remembers the addresses and will call some of the squad, but nearly puts the helmet on again before destroying it and regaining control. Elsewhere, the Kane family are outside enjoying the day when a zombified mind boggler takes hold of the child and the father yells, Call the general! Call J.E.B. Stewart! The godfather of the child. Next issue is out of control. So I want to start off right at the top with the cover and what you thought of the cover. Now, do you have any thoughts on the the cover controversy that happened earlier with issue 40 of Batgirl, the Albuquerque? Um, you know, I think it's a matter of of personal taste mm-hmm. a little bit and it wasn't my jam, yeah. but I get I get what was, you know, what what they were going for, so it's certainly um I know I had a reaction to it and I think at this point, any reaction someone has to something means they're paying right. attention. Um, so, and that's not to like be dismissive or anything, mm-hmm. or to say I agree with anything or don't agree with anything. But because we can get so used to just like, oh yeah, that's the cover for that issue for that month. Like to have a, either a positive or a negative reaction, I think 
is good because it stir, it stirs debate. It gets people interested again. It kind of it helps you focus on what you like to see, what you don't like to see. Um, so I think the silver lining and all of that, because I know there was some some negative mm-hmm. stuff that came out from that, is that you know it gets people talking about what they do want to see on covers, what they don't want to see on covers. Um, and I think that's that's better than kind of abject silence. So yeah, thinking about that cover with this issue forty eight, which very similar if you think about it, perhaps a little less gruesome just because the the smile is not painted on her face. But uh, did you have a, a similar reaction looking at this, or do you think that you know they're just they're different and and looking back since this took place at a different time, this wasn't as intense as as the Albuquerque. Well, I think what's what's interesting is, you know, and I, I don't have the Albuquerque, I don't have that, that issue to to reference right now. With this cover, it's certainly provocative in the same way, but then when you get into the issue itself, it doesn't seem like it's a shock and awe cover right. because it, it deeply factors into everything Barbara is going mm-hmm. through in the issue. So so with regards to that, I you know, it while the content of the cover may be deemed inappropriate, it is appropriate for what the issue is about, um, if, that, if that makes any does, sense. Yeah. So it's, it's certainly not a, hey, look, here's a controversial cover for the sake of being controversial. Mm-hmm. You know, what you know, Joker having kind of Barbara in a compromising position on this cover is really kind of what she's going through as a character in the issue. And it's haunting her. So, um, and we've kind of got that the digital ghost yes. of I believe that's Thinker on the cover, who's closing in on her as well with the big hand, um, or is that Oracle? I really can't. Yeah, it could I be. It, it is hard because of the glasses, because it could be either way. But I, I think it's probably Thinker. So, so I mean, it really does speak to kind of how trapped she is. You know, when you get into the issue. So, um, I think there can be good and bad ways to you know kind of do controversial stuff, so long as it's not you know, for the sake of titillation, but it ties in, mm-hmm. then it's certainly not as as exploitative. Yeah. Well, let's start off just talking about Thinker. And he was one that he actually popped up earlier in a firestorm issue when Babs was over there doing some things apart from the Suicide Squad. So I kind of had background on him, but you don't really know what he's up to here. But what what did you think about him as a villain, and do you think he was a good match for for Oracle and, and Barbara in this? Um, I don't like. I had no real contextual knowledge of him before this, um, and so just kind of getting into and he's like the the second thinker, I believe, right. from yep. what from what's covered that he's he's kind of copycatting in someone's footsteps. He's certainly dangerous enough that when I was reading these issues i was like oh he should totally show up as someone on arrow mm-hmm. like oh, just yeah. just that that there's especially with the um kind of the cyberpunk angle that he's got in this where he can he can affect people mentally he can you know access with you know computers he definitely is a formidable foe and um though i don't have the context necessarily for why he's going after oracle given what barbara's going through at the same time and kind of jumping at shadows, given what happened with Joker and killing Joke, having a villain that she can't see coming easily, um, I think helps to kind of fuel not necessarily her paranoia, but just the emotional state that she's mm-hmm. in 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 this ep- in, I would say this episode in this in this in this. Argument. Yeah, yeah. Sadly, there there wasn't a lot of background besides even in that Firestorm issue. You only just touch upon him, but you don't really know why he's going after Oracle. So it seems like a lot of things are happening in that 
much hated and and controversial land called off-panel land. But but uh-huh. I feel like some things are sort of filled in later on with uh, with Simon in in the next issue, and I guess it's this one as well, talking to Amanda about the thinker getting upset about Babs and going after her. But you do see how dangerous he is because he seems crazy. Carmichael is pretty crazy, but just with the uh, the street scene, I think that just starts it off because you know you have these guys coming in and they're about to knife him, and then he tells them. Well, you need to kill each other, and then they do. So I think you it's a real gut check that, oh, this guy's pretty serious and he's going after Babs. So you kind of wonder, like, what's about to happen. Yeah, absolutely. So, yes, yeah, so the killing joke pops up. And this is something that, you know, whenever it popped up in uh, Gil Simone's run, it was more of a, oh, no, not this again. Because I, for me, it's it's just so emotional. I just want to get past it. But I guess this is the time to do it because it, it happened in 88. It's 91. So I think it's good that Ostrander is bringing it up. And here we're actually getting it from Bab's perspective, which actually hasn't happened before because – you know, the whole story is basically through Jim and Batman's eyes. So what did you think about seeing it through her perspective, how everything happened to her? I mean, it's it still seems to uh, to hop over an inference that something worse may very well yeah. have happened at the hands of the yeah. Joker, which certainly can play into that trauma. Mm-hmm. It was harrowing certainly to, to read. I mean, we, in one of my Batgirl issues, when, um, when Babs was having nightmares or techno nightmares in the techno zombies bit right. she had another thing where joker came to the door but it was calculator who was at the door it's when kind of he was wandering through her memories mm-hmm. um so it's something that i think still you know it's never going to go away for her it can she can cope she can deal with it but it's it's a very real thing that happened and as oracle as this arc kind of chronicles she figures out how to use it to make her stronger versus being afraid of mm-hmm. it and given the time in which this arc came out, I think for for her character, it certainly makes sense, especially because we revealed that she's in therapy talking to a therapist right. about what she's going through. I I think it's certainly needed given, you know, not just for her, but for the reader as well. I mean, if you were someone who was a big fan of Babs at the time, and then, you know, the atrocity happens in, in Killing Joke, and then if it were just never talked about again, like in a way, if you've been writing with your audience surrogate of Barbara in whatever book she was in, you kind of owe it to the reader to travel down the road of recovery with Barbara versus kind of just skipping over mm-hmm. it. So I think even though it's, it's hard to read in this one, especially given the time, it's, it's certainly responsible to the character to, to give her her due and have her kind of face it. And, and also interesting when she was looking back is that she envisions before she even gets to the Joker, she, she sees her father, she sees Batman, she sees herself, and then she sees the Joker. Were you at all shocked that she's almost, I don't know, on the line of, of blaming these individuals, even herself, for, for what happened? Or do you think that everything made sense that, yeah, Jim is, is partly involved because he didn't have the armed guard at his door like most commissioners do? You have Batman for potentially never putting the Joker down. You have herself for not looking through the peephole before answering the door. But do, In Gotham City. I know. Uh, but, and she gets she gets upset because she should have known better because she was Batgirl. It's like, no, you should know better because you're in Gotham yeah, City. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Like after 8 p.m., you just don't answer the door yeah, in Gotham City. Yes, yeah. And I always wondered just, you know, does Joker look up in the telephone book, you know, looking for Jim Gordon? Or I, I wonder how he actually found out where they lived. But, but somebody made fun of me and said, well, it was pretty easy. But I don't know. I still feel like he had to do some legwork to figure it out. Um, I, I think for her, I mean, with, you know, how she, when she recounts the memory, how she's, mm-hmm. she's dealing with, you know, sometimes she sees her dad, sometimes she sees Bruce, sometimes she sees herself. But ultimately it was the Joker. It's, it's it's I want to say it's a victim psychology like I'm an expert but that when something traumatic happens like if you're in a car accident for example you're like oh well maybe if I had done blank it wouldn't have happened that as she's going through the different facets of her life like maybe if I hadn't been my father's daughter I wouldn't have been a target maybe if I hadn't been associated with Batman maybe if I hadn't taken agency myself and been Batgirl um, and ultimately it's that the clown prince of crime shows up at the door and he's going to do it regardless of all of those things mm-hmm. You know, I think it's it certainly seems like a natural thing to do, as the therapist points out that she's that she's trying to either disassociate or associate blame on on many different things, but ultimately she blames herself, and then she you know she won't reveal the real reason that she feels it happened is because she was Batgirl. Yeah, yeah, I really like the the therapy session. I didn't like it when it popped up in the uh, most recent Batgirl run with Simone, sadly, uh, because she sort of breaks down and runs out of the room. But I felt like here, while she does show emotion, she's actually working through her issues. And it was interesting that the doctor calls her out on holding something back and pretending to be someone else. So I feel like, I don't know if this doctor will pop up again, but I thought, wow, she really sees through Babs here. So I thought that was interesting. And there's an interesting thing, too, that if it's on purpose, I can't really figure out why, but the therapist is colored like the Joker. Like, if you look at her, she's got green hair mm. and a pale face, and she's wearing purple. purple. Yeah. And it's this, it's this odd, I don't know yeah. if it was meant to be come back to, or if it's, it's an odd kind of swing for, like, fearful symmetry. Like, I'm not particularly sure why that would be the case, but it's unnerving as hell. Yeah, it's very true. So I don't I don't know I don't I don't know how to give commentary on that but it's just this odd thing I noticed when I was reading the issue that um, it seems to be on purpose they just don't really do anything with mm-hmm. it yeah who knows what the what the colorist was thinking or if it was direction from Ostrander or it could just be like a byproduct of the you know time and, yeah. the, and the printing process and all everything. of that stuff it's just however it occurred it's still it's it's an odd thing once you once you see it you can't not see it yeah very true. Well, here, you know, this is a Babs issue, but I really think this is also an Amanda Waller issue, and I love her interactions with Simon. They've had a bad relationship, or I should say a tension-filled relationship in the past, so it's good to see them getting along. But we see her really changed, I think, after her time. She spent a year in prison, uh, so that's what, what happened previously. She actually turned herself in and decided she went too far. But here, you know, she's decided she's going to help Oracle out. And this journey into, as I call it, Atari land. What did you think about this? That, you know, it was art, the art itself, and no words. And Waller just sort of following Thinker and Oracle along as they're, they're battling it out. Did you find these pages interesting or were they all, at all confusing for you? It was, it was a little hard for me to read, to be honest. Yes. Um, that, was, that was the one part where, where I kind of I didn't realize what I was looking at. Mm-hmm. It makes sense afterwards, but I, get, I totally get what they were going for. Yes. And it's not, it's not a commentary. You know, it's not saying that anyone who, who drew on the book is, is not talented because I certainly cannot even do that much. It was just it was a narrative little turn for me that I didn't quite track with, but, but makes sense when you go back and look at it. Because yeah. if, if you haven't read the issue, it's a dramatically different art style. Mm-hmm. 
um, for one, two, three, four pages yeah. in the middle of the book. Yep. It was, yeah, it was a change, and I, it was hard for me to see. The second time I read it, I saw the face behind it, and I was like, oh, there's Amanda. But I, I yes, just don't know yeah. how Amanda can tell what's going on from these two people running around, but she was able to get an address and, and all of this stuff. So And Thinker kind of looks like Captain Planet a little bit. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Very true. But I, I liked how the helmet really tired and tempted Waller, but she ended up overcoming it as, you know, only the wall can. Did you find that scene at all interesting, just that she was about to go into the system again and Simon's like, you need to step back? Well, and that she she caught on, I think, which right. is which is great yep. because she is she is super tough and she's super strong. And she, she realized that kind of the, uh, the genie in the bottle was tempting her. Mm-hmm. And then took her extreme measures to make sure she wouldn't be poisoned exactly. by the uh, by the helmet, which is which is super 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 strong of her. Which I which I very much not that I've never not liked Amanda Waller, mm-hmm. but it was a nice it was a nice little seeing the the redemption kind of color on her because like especially recently she's portrayed as such a hard ass who just does what she has to do to get things done. Right. Um, kind of seeing her in and not just her but the squad too. Like in in the in the next couple issues, mm-hmm. they they are far less what you would call suicide squad in that you'll be killed if you don't go on this mission and they feel very much more like the A team right in in this little run so it's um it's certainly a thought provoking enough kind of twist on what i know suicide squad to be to make me want to go find the other issues mm-hmm. and see what it's all about yeah exactly and then we end the comic with with a random zombie scene but who doesn't like walking dead in every comic but that wraps itself up in issue 50 which we're not covering but out of 10 cross do you want to rate it it's kind of part of part of a whole piece. Of the whole like, thing, so do you want to wait yeah. until the end? I'd say let's wait till the okay, end. Okay, we'll sounds do, we'll good. We'll do a number for the end, Okay. Yeah. Next up is Suicide Squad number 49, Out of Control. Cover date, January 1991. Writers John Ostrander and Kim Yale, artists Luke McDonald and Jeff Isherwood, and colorist Tom McCraw. Waller brings the squad up to speed, and they decide to divide and conquer with the addresses. Boomerang is unsure about this mission and tries to quit, but takes it back. Simon comments that the squad seems mentally unstable, but Amanda waves it off. Waller is also going out on the mission, and the new Adam, Adam Cray, is going to stay with Simon in case Oracle makes contact. Thinker goes to a derelict apartment and talks to Stan, Stan, about the packages that he receives. Where do they come from, and where does he send them? Stan, with his wife yelling at him the entire time, think about Fargo, the FX series, and that relationship, and you'll see what happens, tells Thinker about Amy Beddoes at Hotel Tamarindo. Thinker then tells Stan to strangle his wife. At the GCPD shooting range, Babs is wondering what she is doing with the gun, since she hates them. Again, she sees Joker and is determined to never be a victim again. Elsewhere, Boomerang, or Boomer Bud, as some people like to call him, gets harassed by some people on the street and knocks them out with some boomerangs. After that, he basically feels like he did his due diligence. Also elsewhere, some cops are tracking Deadshot, but he gets the best of them and they walk away, alive. At Hotel Tamarindo, Babs lies to her father and tells him her conference will be over in a day or so. She considers why it is easy to lie to her father and whether she will be able to take Thinker's life. She has set the Amy Beddoes trap, but before she can think further, Carmichael bursts in. He interrogates Babs and tries to get info on Oracle. He thinks maybe this Amy is Oracle, but before he can do anything, Amanda drops in and he wonders if she is Oracle. He tries to get them to kill each other, but Amanda's time under the thinker's cap helped her prevent being taken over by this thinker. A fight ensues, and Babs pulls a gun, but Waller wonders who she really is trying to shoot, as we see images of Joker, Batman, Jim, and that strangely designed Batgirl again. 
She hands over the gun to Waller, and Waller knocks Carmichael out. It won't be Arkham for him, since he'll just slip out. Thank goodness someone realizes the problem with Arkham Asylum. But Waller has more productive uses for him. Waller makes an offer to Babs, and she agrees to hear her out. Back at IMMS, General Stewart is looking for Waller because it involves a debt of honor to someone who died, a debt that Waller, the squad, and the general owe, finding his godson and the only son of Rick Flagg. Next up we have Debt of Honor. Again, I want to start with the cover, and this was actually an issue that I looked at at comic convention shows and everything for it everywhere because it just seemed like such a prolific cover. What do you think about this where she's in the wheelchair, she's got her <laughs> she's got her gun raised with this grimace on her face, which you don't really see Babs. I mean, Babs is more sour as Oracle, but you, you generally don't see her like this. What do you think about this one? Um, you know, this one too, I mean, when we talked to the provocative nature of the 48 cover, mm-hmm. this one very much like as far as the cover representing what the character is going through on the inside, I think the covers for the arc very much tell the story of what she's going through. So while one could say this is certainly a very provocative cover as well, um, it's I think it's really cool. Like It's just in a visceral way, yeah. just knowing the history of what Barbara's been through. Mm-hmm. It's certainly dark, but you know she's got that scowl and she's yeah. aiming a gun at someone, which you don't really associate with Barbara, so it's provocative in that way. Um, but then when you get into the story, you understand what she's going through. And what she's going through is do I need to become a killer to overcome what has happened at the hands of killers? Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, that would have been something really awesome for her to go through with Bruce. Instead of Amanda, Amanda certainly helps a lot um, with, with her dilemma in the issue. But um, given Bruce and his history with guns, it's just the, I think the conversation would have been so much richer um, if – if Bruce Wayne had been involved. Yeah, yes. They actually have not interacted yet post uh, The Killing Joke. So, and, and she just popped up finally in Batman 450. That was the first time that Oracle has, well, Babs has been in a Batman title since The Killing Joke. So, uh, How long was that in human years? Like on, that's, if it's the uh, I think that, that was 1990, so two years. Like two years? Yeah. Okay. So, but it was just shocking because I've been reading Suicide Squad. She's popped up in random things like Firestorm and Starman, and then finally we have Batman. But, but haven't had an interaction with them yet, so I'm waiting for that. Well, in this issue, we get an actual interaction between members of the Suicide Squad. Were there any favorite or interesting interactions that you had? There's some in the in the next issue we'll do. There's some interesting ones too. But uh, you know, I just think about Boomerang. They call him Boomer Butt, and him wanting to quit, and then Amanda saying, "Well, if you want to quit, then go ahead and quit." And then he's like, "No, no, no, I don't want to quit." <laughs> well, and that and that Lawton, that Deadshot wants to kill him because Exit. he lost his luggage. Yeah, like it's 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 fun. Like there's there's they're dangerous people, mm-hmm. and then having those dangerous people have their kind of seemingly trivial issues between them it's i think it's it's a good kind of danger in the group mm-hmm. dynamic the thing i was most surprised about that i had no idea about just in dc history was that there was a bad adam that there's this other adam that waller has in her employ that's not ray yeah because just in in my knowledge of comic books it goes from ray to ryan Choi, mm-hmm. and there's not this guy in the middle yeah casey um, jones yeah oh well someone oh, adam, who looks like casey jones sorry adam cray is uh, is his name? So it was certainly educational in that regard. Yeah, because apparently the other Adam, Ray Palmer, is dead. Yeah. So so this guy has popped up, and and I call him Casey Jones because I feel like he looks like if Casey Jones from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles decided to use pain particles, this is what he would look like. This is how he would dress. Well, and his outfit too. And this is this again is just it's an odd it's an odd outfit. 
it's just it looks like it's a turtle. <laughs> it's a turtleneck that comes up into a ski mask that doesn't yeah. have a top, so his hair's out. So it's it's it was the disorientation of like, why is Ray dressed like that? Oh, mm-hmm. that's not Ray. Okay, I guess that's all right. Yeah. So I guess he factors into later stuff, but he didn't really he didn't really factor into the story. Yeah. Unless he, unless he came in in issue fifty, which we didn't look at, but it, he didn't really factor into the action as far as uh, forty nine and fifty one are concerned. Yeah, just to protect uh, Simon, should the thinker yeah. do something? Yeah. What's really interesting, this team meeting was very shocking for me to view because I've read some of the the Suicide Squad, you know, before this where it's almost a lecture hall. They're sitting there. Amanda Waller is the only one standing up, and she's very fierce. And basically, you know, my my rules are what goes. And here, all sitting down on the same level, which I thought was very symbolic, she, you know, being, you know, if you want to quit, whatever, not threatening to kill Boomerang or anything. It's a very different team dynamic now that she's been out of prison and the the squad is, is being used and repurposed. So that was a very interesting scene for me. Yeah, I mean, the only, I think the only kind of, I don't want to say it's a, it's a letdown, but the, the when you set up, just as far as mathematically, like rules in the story and what information you present and when you're setting up the stakes and the threat, that uh, thinker, they go to great lengths to set up that thinker is capable, and they show it, of making people do things against their will if you get within 10 feet of him, right? Right. Um, and that he can access any computer anywhere. And so you're expecting the squad to, like, converge on him. Mm-hmm. And then the danger of, oh, God, you can't get too close. Don't get too close to him or else things will go sideways. And what's set up is, you know, the the enmity between Boomerang and Floyd and kind of the danger of this team, you know, working together. And so you think, okay, well, that's it. It's primed and ready to go. Like, there's the, there's the tinder. Let's put gasoline and light a match. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't happen. So, yeah. so I can't figure out if I'm disappointed that it didn't happen or that I'm pleasantly surprised because my expectations were subverted. Because what you get with Amanda and uh, Barbara, who's posing as, as a woman named Amy right. at this point, um, it's certainly still satisfying because then it's about Barbara. Mm-hmm. That's about what Barbara's going through. Um, so from a dramatic character standpoint, I think what they've got is ultimately better. But from a little geek Suicide Squad fan standpoint, you know, not getting to see them turning on each other a little bit mm-hmm. um, is is a little bit of a disappointment. Yeah, and, and those two, Lawton and Boomerang, have really random scenes where Boomerang you know, a gang, almost like the same gang from the previous issue that went up against uh, Thinker, but they come up to him as if they're going to rob him, and then he throws his boomerang and gets rid of them, and then Lawton, they've got the cops, and the cops are about to arrest him, and he shoots up their vehicle, which I think points to how changed Deadshot is, because he didn't shoot the cops, he just let them go, but they do seem like very strange scenes that we're on this mission, but we get waylaid by, by random things so yeah I, I didn't think about that that it'd be interesting to have them go up against the thinker and see what happened but i guess ostrander is saving that interaction for something else well but what i think is i mean it's maybe telling of the times there's a lot of talking in these issues um which which you don't really get as much talking in in mm-hmm. in current comics um so i think that the part of me that that yearned for seeing that action sequence is the modern comic reader Mm. part of me that's kind of been conditioned and trained to see those things happen um whereas if you look at 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 the the base elements of of this arc it's very much more like an episode of tv 
just with with the setup. The team sits around. They talk about what they're going to do. You've got procedural beats of you know Boomerang going out looking for Oracle's headquarters and Lawton going out looking for Oracle's headquarters. In and there's a lot more, I think, character work um, in these issues than you might be able to pull off in a similarly lengthed book today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, that's true. And so I've just talked myself out of being disappointed that there was <laughs> there that there was go. no action sequence um, because I'll I'll take I'll take you know ten character scenes over an action scene any day. Any day, yeah, and, and that's very much like uh, Avengers two. I would say if you've have you seen that movie? I have seen that movie, okay, which is very character driven. I think compared to the first one. Uh, no, ab- ab- absolutely. I mean, yeah. it's in 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 fits and spurts. I mean, because yeah. there's certainly way more eye candy in the second one too. Right. Um, so it's, I think what helps is that a lot of, you know, the peripheral movies have gotten a lot of the heavy lifting of the character stuff out of the way. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, like everyone kind of already knows they, they've, they've aired their laundry before becoming a team as of that first movie. So it's a little bit easier when you get into something like the second one, cause you don't have to deal with, well, what's right. Iron Man going to say the first time he sees <laughs> Thor that's already taken care of. <laughs> yeah, very true. Uh, what did you think about Babs at the gun range? Because I thought, wow, what a strange image. She who abhors guns is right here. And then, of course, you see uh, the Joker and the Thinker imagery again continuing. I, I, as far as her arc is concerned, I mean, it's, I think it's certainly, it fits with, with the, the, the recovery that, that Ostrander and crew are playing with and what Barbara's mm-hmm. going through. Um, in, in a way, again, this might speak to why, I feel like it should have been more in a bad title book. It feels like she's not getting enough time to deal with what she's going through. It's it's covered adequately here, but there's a part of me that wonders like, okay, well then, you know, let's see a scene of her having to lie to her father versus being on the phone. Like just living yeah. living in those moments, which you can't fit, you know, in a book that has to deal with this many players. But it certainly would have been interesting to kind of see the other the other things that she references in therapy kind of playing out. In, in live action, as it were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned about Babs lying to her father. Do you think that's for her sake or his? She says it's for his, um, but I believe, as her therapist points out, it might be a little bit for hers, too. Mm-hmm. Um, what I do wonder about, and it's not covered in here, is whether or not her dad knows she's going to the gun range with the other uniforms. Yeah. And then, it, you know, it, it begs the question of like, okay, well then what's the dinner scene that happens after this gun rage scene where Gosh. she has to explain to her dad why she was mm-hmm. doing that? And of course, I mean, he'll know, right? Because he, I'm sure he very much blames himself for what happened to her mm-hmm. during Killing Joke. Yeah. Um, so, but, you know, you don't have that many pages in something yeah. where you've got to split it with all of these convicted felons that are working together as a team. So, yeah. Yeah, and we get a lot of his guilt in Batman 451, which came out, I guess, a couple months before this. It's a very Jim and Batman-centric issue where a fake Joker came up, so he had to deal with that. And at one point, he comes to the library and he says, I just want to let you know that the Joker is alive. Because up till now, he has been in hiding after the uh, death in the family. So there's been a little bit of that, but... I, I kind of I just don't like to see Barbara <laughs> lie to her father because I really love that relationship, and it's it's clear he doesn't know that she's Oracle right now. Do you think he would support her if he knew, or do you think he'd be really upset that she's going back into the game after what happened to her? About the about the Oracle part. Yeah. Um. I think just like being a father myself, it definitely you'd want your kid to be safe no matter what. And that the the life that either of them leads may lead to more events like that. Mm-hmm. 
so as as much as he loves her and thinks she is capable, I think that he wouldn't be able to shake the fact that the as soon as you step into that life, you've got a target on your back one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would have been interesting to kind of live in that a little bit in these issues. Yeah, very true. So let's get to the climax of the story, which is Amy Beddoes, a.k.a. Oracle, (laughs) (laughs) and the thinker bursting in and him not realizing that Amy is Oracle, and then, of course, Amanda Waller. So I I thought that this whole thing was very wonderful and just tense with with everything that was going on, and, and finally, you know, Oracle, well, Amy, was unable to shoot him and I thought it was interesting that Waller of all people was the one to to talk her down and and help her out from that. But what did you think of this? All of these interactions with these three characters, how it all came together. I thought the interaction was great. Um, it's just like like I said earlier, I wished it could have been Batman and not Waller yeah. um, that was having that cross with her. But given given where both of their arcs kind of are are crossing. In, mm-hmm. in her needing redemption and, and Barbara kind of needing what she thinks is closure, um, but she just needs to heal. Um, I think it, it's, a very, it's a very nice uh, overlap of, of what they're each going through. And yeah. then, of course, you know, that once she had the gun in her hands and then she pictured, you know, her being shot at the end of, you know, she pictures shooting the Joker and then she pictures right. shooting Batman. And then she finds herself in the role of Joker in the doorway, basically, mm-hmm. um, that she's not able to pull the trigger is, is, you know, whether or not you, anyone thinks that her going down that road is untrue to her character. It's okay for, for characters to kind of question and wander a little bit from, from what they normally would do as long as it's justified. Right. And and given what she went through, I think she has more than earned a little bit of second guessing, not just herself, but kind of the world around her. Yeah. Um, and I think it's it's totally fair for her to go through what she's going through in these in these in these arcs, because for her to not, you know, like I said earlier, would be untrue to either her character or the events that happened to her. Yeah, and I hope this is the catalyst for her to gain her, her skills with the Eskrima sticks because I, I think part of it was she felt physically helpless. She's really powerful on the internet, but what can she do, you know, in the chair? And so I hope that this is the moment where she gets rid of the, the proverbial gun and is able to pick some sticks up and, and train and take care of herself. But. Well, and she, she also, and I don't know if it's on purpose, but she's got two different chairs in this arc too because there's one chair that's a little power chair that's got four wheels yeah. That she's got a joystick for when she's in therapy, and then when she's on her own, she's in the manual chair mm-hmm. that she would have to move with her arms. So um, I don't know if that's on purpose and speaking to her transitioning to a more, you know, taking care of herself, using her, you know, using her arms and her strength to kind of get herself from point A to point B, both physically and and emotionally. I don't know if that's on purpose or not. It'd yeah. be co- it'd be cool if it was, yeah. but but I wasn't there, so I have no idea. <laughs> Yes, but a great scene overall. I, I loved learning more about Amy Beddoes, though I do question her getting her tech shipped to random people and then they send it to her. I felt like maybe she was endangering some people, which happens with that, that couple that get killed. But. It, it does, but I mean, that might just be us with our current kind of cultural context okay. thinking. Okay. That's, that's you know, I mean, then I would mm-hmm. assume that was a far more labyrinthine, complicated yeah. process because you couldn't just get that information unless you were someone who was like a super hacker whereas now you can pretty much get into someone's Amazon account and find out who they're sending stuff to 
if you if you put your mind to it. So yeah. given what is this 91, 89? Yeah. What was yeah. 91. When kind of the internet as we know it wasn't even close to being right. what it is now. Uh-huh. Um, that you know thinker and what he was capable of were far more dangerous a thing. So it's it's not that she was being reckless. It's that she's just outmatched by this guy who's faster than her. Mm-hmm. So out of ten crosshairs, as I rate these, how how would you rate this particular story arc? These two issues. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and say eight. We'll do eight. Okay. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the read a lot, um, and really liked um, you know that that there was time in this arc for character stuff to breathe. Mm-hmm. Very um, true. And those yeah. two points between eight and ten would have been if uh, the Bat family had dealt with her grief instead of just her and Amanda. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I'm going to raise you a point five, but you know we're definitely dealing with a different Suicide Squad here, and just seeing how damaged people are and how certain situations have changed them, and just big for Amanda and Babs, and it's also just a big role for or a big change for Oracle because now at the end of this particular issue, Amanda's basically saying, you know. I want you on the squad, but it's up to you. So it's a big moment in the history of Barbara Gordon. Now, we're not going to be reviewing this particular issue, but there was the oversized issue number 50 of Suicide Squad, and this was the Debt of Honor. And it's basically the culmination of these last few pages that we saw in 48 and 49 with these zombies and then General J.E.B. Stewart. So Amanda Waller puts together a special team that includes Suicide Squad founding members like Nemesis, Nightshade, Bronze Tiger, and Deadshot for a personal mission to preserve the legacy of Rick Flagg. It's very much an Empire Strikes Back scene where a character slips himself inside a Yeti to keep warm, if you see this at the beginning, some backflashes and and, uh, situations leading up there. Carmichael is at IMMS, which Simon Legrieve does not approve of, but he's going to stay there until Oracle comes up with a solution, so that's important to note. There's lots of history with Rick Flagg throughout this oversized issue. They bring back characters that left the squad, like Nemesis and Nightshade, who then turns into Enchantress and just looks crazy town. Lots of zombie Suicide Squad members, and then this whole thing is perpetrated by Jeff, or Jess Bright, a.k.a. Koshe the Deathless, to exact revenge on Rick Flagg. And the reason why I say Jeff or Jess Bright is because in this particular comic, it's Jeff. But when you go online to research this character, it's Jess Bright. Not too sure about that discrepancy, but okay. And in the end, Rick's son is saved, and Koshe lets him go because he loved Karen, the mother. So love wins out in the end, as it always should. But let's get into our final issue, which is Suicide Squad number 51, Fractured Image, cover date of March 1991. Writers John Ostrander and Kim Yale, breakdowns Luke McDonald, finishes Jeff Isherwood, and colorist Tom McCraw. In Marseille, France, at a dive by the docks, a deadshot imposter shoots up the place with no provocation. At the IMMS, outside of Pittsburgh, Waller talks to a fake sleeping Carmichael, who immediately tries to control her with his powers, but gets a bad headache instead. Waller explains that new programs have been introduced to the chips that were inserted into his brain that will either give him a migraine if he tries to take someone's mind over, or will induce a virus that will wipe the chip unless it gets a coded password every 24 hours. In exchange, Carmichael will work for her and comply. 
Outside the door, Oracle, a.k.a. Amy Beddoes, says she is still working on a program that will give a sense of right and wrong to Carmichael, so they're trying to issue some ethics to this guy, but she still doesn't know if it's possible. Waller also stuns Oracle by asking her to consider running the squad should Waller fail to return from a mission, because she's going out in the field now. Oracle promises to consider it, and Waller assures her that the squad will never meet her. Alone, Simon asks what Waller knows about Amy, and Waller admits that she is private, but her name is not really Amy, but she promised to accept her ID as is. Waller then asks Hilgreave if it is possible to help Oracle walk again, but he is not optimistic since she is missing part of her spine, and the tech used to help her van walk won't help her. Meanwhile, Vixen is still recovering, and Ben is too nervous to visit her, so that relationship is pretty damaged, and Count Vertigo seems to be detoxified. And speaking of Vertigo, he asks Lawton if he would be willing to do a mercy killing, i.e. kill Vertigo himself, and Lawton agrees. Boomerang, or Boomerbutt, confronts Lawton and asks why he knocked him out in a dangerous situation with the zombies back in issue 50. And it's simple. Hey, you lost my Deadshot suit. Good news, it's been found. Bad news, someone else is using it. Nightshade and Nemesis talk about returning to the squad and have a romantic moment before we switch to Lawton in France talking to Descard, who tells him that Mark Pilar is the person running around in his suit. Descard will get the location of the docks where he'll be tonight, but his motives are suspicious. It seems there is a wager on who will die first, the American or the Frenchman, and his money is on the American because there is psychology involved. Lawton shooting at Deadshot is like shooting at himself and possibly killing his soul. This seems to be true as Lawton avoids a perfect shot at the docks. The fight then moves into a warehouse where there is a firefight, some smack talk, and finally Lawton takes the opportunity to shoot Deadshot and tell him that the suit is his once he's dead, of course, and then he walks away. And next issue we will have the return of Dr. Light? Question mark? Issue 51, which is mainly a Deadshot issue, but I did want to bring up the introduction with we see Thinker, he's in the hospital, Amanda has complete control over him, and then she comes out, Oracle's working on more safeguards against Thinker, but she drops the bomb that I want you to be the new Amanda Waller in case the real Amanda Waller gets killed in the field. What did you think about that bombshell? Um, I thought it was cool. Um, it's, you know, it's certainly, and I, I knew, you know, historically this was a period of time for Barbara when she was involved with uh, these shenanigans, mm-hmm. but um, it's certainly in reading it, you know, in living color as it were on the page makes me want to go dig up those issues and read about her time running the squad. Did you have any concerns when we find out that Simon is trying to find a way to give Oracle her legs back? Um... Yeah, yes and no. It's kind of an afterthought. They don't really pursue it at all in the issue. It's just kind of planted. Mm-hmm. And that, that was the deal that was brokered between, I guess, Amanda and Amy um, yeah. and in return <laughs> for her service. It's certainly nice of Waller to not forcibly conscript um, Oracle. Yep. Um, which is nice, even though she's in a way up to her old tricks with Thinker when Thinker wakes up, because she definitely, it's not a bomb in Thinker's head, but it's a bomb in Thinker's head. Like there's, mm-hmm. there's certainly some, some Task Force X extortion in play um, with Thinker. Definitely. Um, you know, I, I can't help but think that if it were possible, like why wouldn't Babs, especially at that point, want a solution and want right. a cure? So yeah. Then there's even, if I remember right, right, the whole later, much later, 10 years later, 15 years later, that Cure Mini, 
yes. um, is all about that. So mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think it's ever it's ever too far from her mind, but it especially makes sense given how close this is in time to when she when she was when she lost her legs in the first place. Yeah, exactly. And then the the Lawton, what do you think about the the? We find out that the reason why he's upset is because his suit was in the luggage, and now someone's pretending to be Deadshot, and kind of ruining his bad name. But we see, I think we we see him in a very different state of mind. What did you think about that fight scene between Lawton and then the fake Deadshot? Um, he certainly overcomes in the end. You know that you know I'm more than the suit um, is kind of where it ends up. And so it kind of makes more sense when you go back and look at the first two issues we talked about where he's really seemingly uh, disproportionately upset about his luggage being lost. Mm-hmm. You kind of get into the psychology. Yeah. <laughs> you get into the psychology here about what the suit means to him. Yeah. Um, and then ultimately, um, you know, he kind of rises above and says, I'm not the suit. It it would have been cool. I can't help but think that given what Barbara's going through post Batgirl, that there could have been a way to mirror that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, and maybe they do in future issues, but they didn't go there in this one. So thematically, it might have been a little stronger if if they had leaned into that a little bit. Um, but that's just, I think, my writer brain versus another writer brain. So that doesn't necessarily mean it's better or worse for it. But um, you know, Lawton's a badass, and so it was it was kind of nice to to live in the moment with the other with Ducard and the bad guys right. um, who were setting him up mm-hmm. and then he couldn't you know he couldn't pull the trigger until the very yeah. end so, yeah um it's Certainly it's cool humbling. yeah mm-hmm. yeah I, I think this issue is uh, the latest and a major shift in this particular book where now we're seeing more character driven issues and really looking internally and psychologically at different characters and i like that so that's great if you were to give a rating out of 10 crosshairs what would you give this particular book? um this one I'll, I'll do i'll go a little bit lower i'll do a 7.5 <laughs> and, and I'll again raise you half and give it an eight. It's, you know, I, uh, the major bombshell with Oracle is that she is trusted, even though Amanda doesn't really know who Amy is. She's letting her go with that, but potentially getting her legs back and also potentially being the leader of Suicide Squad should anything happen to Amanda. So that's a big thing. Do you want to at least tease like anything, you know, that you're working on that we can support you in? Uh, I am currently, uh, we are finishing up writing season three of Defiance, which is on oh, yes. sci-fi. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we, um, I believe we start the second Thursday in June is when season three premieres. So um, I did episode nine of, uh, of season three. So uh, that's, that's where I've been and, and will be uh, for the near future. Okay. Did you make Stama less of a creeper this week? <laughs> she makes me unsettled. She, I don't know. She scares um, me. They go through, there's some rough stuff. There's some okay. rough stuff that the, the, the Tar family goes through. Um, okay. So I, I'd say the Creeper is never totally gone. <laughs> but um, but it's, it, gets, it gets sticky. They're in quite okay. a pickle when we, when we pick up it. with them. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for, for taking time out of your day to, to be with, with Backroll to Oracle to celebrate this momentous episode 100. No, thank you very much for, uh, for having me. And I hadn't realized, uh, like we talked about, I don't know if we were recording, that it had been so long since we had done one of these. Yeah, since 2010. We've talked. We've talked since then. Yeah. We've seen each other since then. We just haven't officially done one of these since then. Yes. So, yeah. so congratulations to you on, on, oh, thank you. on going strong. Okay, well, I'll let you get back to your day job now. All right, cool. Thank you for having me. <laughs> yes, of course. Well, that's it for... 
Brian on Backroll the Oracle episode 100 and the vintage reviews. When I come back, I will have another very special guest and we will be reviewing Convergence Nightwing and Oracle number one and Convergence Backroll number one. But first, we have Zias's Radio Hour featuring Radioactive by Imagine Dragons. episode 100 obviously and the second half you know the first half we had a special guest the second half we have another special guest I'm just cramming them in there as much as possible and this one was sort of out of nowhere uh, for me a little bit and, and, and a, a pleasant surprise certainly when I got his email saying that he, he wanted to come on and I think everyone's going to be super shocked to learn of this person's actual existence but 
Everyone loves and knows Kimberly Rockmore, one of my dearest friends, and of course she's she's working in D.C., so she can't really be a part of BTO anymore, but I've recently come into contact with her, her half-brother, Richard Stoneless, and Richard has agreed very graciously to come on Backward to Oracle and review these modern titles with me. So, Richard, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. So, Richard... Like I said, I, I haven't really known of your existence. Not um, many people do. Yeah, so welcome. But I, 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 you know, give people a little background as to who you are. Okay, so the thing is, my uh, sister Kimberly, she, uh, she's a little bit older than me. Uh, we have uh, the same, the same father, but not the same mother. Uh, hence, my last name being Stoneless and not Rockmore. But uh, I have uh, been a fan of BTO since Kimberly first appeared on the show. I, I gave it a listen every once in a while. But uh, the the big thing is uh, I, I figured, you know, episode 100, why not come on board and, uh, you know, review these books? My, my, uh, my history with comics is, is very simple. I, uh, I gave it up. I gave it up uh, with the new 52. I gave up comics and uh, I don't read them anymore. Um, but uh, with the convergence, people were talking and I thought maybe it'd be a good idea to come back. Uh, give it another shot. But uh, it's it, it, uh, not so much. Not so much. I, I haven't liked it that much. Um, I'm sure we'll get into it when we review the books. But uh, basically, yeah, that, that's about it. Okay. When you're not... Richard Stoneless, you know, comic reviewer by night. What exactly are you doing by day? What What is well, your day job? Well, by day, I'm a I'm a rubbish man. Um, you know, the you know, I think you call it a garbage man. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's that's what I do during the day. We make good money, stinky work, but good money. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, you you find some interesting things sometimes. Um, but. I won't get into that, but uh, yeah, um, uh, you know, at night I, I I play some some video games from uh, the you know about fifteen years ago. I chat with the women online, yeah, stuff like that. Okay, so basically well rounded, and and you you're pretty versed in pop culture of of different kinds. Oh, pop culture of all kinds. I love watching movies. I, I, I play video games. Well, 15 years ago, I played a lot of video games that were current, not so much the new stuff. But, uh, yeah, um, yeah, I, I enjoy pop culture very much. Have you talked with Kimberly at all recently? I mean, do you keep in touch with her, or are you not as close uh, of siblings? Uh, we, we see each other at the family reunions every five years. Um, I talk to her every once in a great while. Um, but for the most part, you know, you know, we don't have the same mother, so we definitely aren't sharing Mother's Day together. Okay. Yeah. Well, what can you do? Well, it's, 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 a, it's a blessing and an honor to have you on, Richard. Is there anything else you, you want us to know about you before we get into these actual convergence reviews that you're pretty excited about? Well, I will say this. I have a very, very great admiration for redheads. Oh. So, so that's another reason why mm-hmm. I enjoy being here uh, on Back to Oracle. Yeah, you and Shag both. So. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Okay, well, let's get into these reviews and see if you, uh, you came on for a good episode or not. We're, we're going to start off with Convergence Nightwing Oracle Number 1, titled Birds of Rage. Writer Gail Simone, Pensor Jan DeSerma, 
anchored Dan Parsons, colorist Wes DeZoba. In the city of El Inferno, Hawkman and Hawkwoman of an alternate timeline and universe have just killed the Justice Riders mercilessly. They look to Brainiac's drones for guidance and who to destroy next, but get no answer. Uncaring, Hawkwoman simply challenges them to bring further champions because warriors of Thanagar will not surrender if it means they can keep some shade of their world alive. In Gotham City, Nightwing and Oracle, yay, have begun to adapt to their new way of life under the dome. His impulsive nature is in conflict with her calculations and forethought, but that impulsive nature means he lives in the moment, which is what they both needed when they were forced to adapt. From her place in the clock tower, she guides him on a new mission to stop Mr. Freeze at the museum. Unfortunately, not everyone adapted as well as Nightwing did. Even before Dick can gain the upper hand, Freeze abandons his robbery, simply giving up. The despair of knowing that there is no way to get out of the city, that he will never see any of the people who had lived outside it again, has taken its toll and he has lost the motivation to continue. Kind of depressed by the whole ordeal, Dick asks for some time alone, going radio silent for a time. And after getting off air for some reason, he decides to meet up with Starfire. I felt like I was being trolled. Whom he confides in. He has something he's been meaning to do, but with the way things have gone, he isn't sure he has the right to do it. He isn't sure he has the right to be happy. Corey reminds him that he can't afford to fear happiness. He has his chance, and he should take it because everyone needs to know that in this new state of affairs, something still matters. So after returning to Barbara, Dick is still a bit preoccupied. He's shaken by something she understands all too well. The reason Freeze surrendered was because he saw the pointlessness. He saw the track of the endless treadmill that they are now on, as if they were hamsters. She can't bear to tell him, but she's beginning to feel the same way. Failing to sense it in her, he asks her to get dressed up and insists on taking her out to dinner. Babs can't help but be down about the fact that the restaurant menus have been shrinking and becoming more bland of late. With the lack of places to import from, it was Poison Ivy who actually saved everyone by growing food in Robinson Park. Part of her feels ashamed for having treated Ivy like a villain for so long, and of course making fun of her. Over dinner, Dick interrupts Barbara's order to tell her how he feels about her. He explains that whatever happens in this world, he knows they can bear it if they have each other. So pulling a ring out of his pocket, he asks her to marry him, and after a pause, though, she admits that she can't. He's confused, he asks why, but actually they have no time to discuss it because the dome around the city suddenly vanishes. Internally, Barbara can't help but wonder if this is a sign that she should accept his proposal, but feeling free for the first time in a while, the pair of them eat dinner outside and enjoy themselves for an hour, but by the end of that hour, the invaders come. Hawkman approaches Barbara and explains that he knows, thanks to all-seeing drone bots called Absorbicons, that she secretly runs Gotham. While he knows also that there were other versions of he and Hawkwoman on Barbara's Earth, he assures her that he is not that Hawkman. Hawkwoman explains her intent to kill everyone in the city for the sake of their own. Barbara is sure she means it. And before Hawkwoman can finish her speech, Babs has Nightwing make a surprise attack. Unfortunately, he is not strong enough to take on this version of Hawkman alone. Even so, Hawkwoman turns to Barbara and admits that she does not like rules. Thanagarians fight to win in a manner that allows no future resistance. For that reason, she offers a plan. She and Hawkman intend to abandon their weaker city and let it be destroyed. If Barbara agrees, they will then be allowed to take refuge in this Gotham. Hawkwoman explains that she and Hawkman are all that remains of their Thanagar. If they die, regardless of which city they champion, it is the end of their Thanagar. So the catch, the plan is that this city will then be ruled by them and remade in Thanagar's image. 
Naturally, Dick outright refuses the offer, challenging her to battle, as was the original plan. She responds that if he goes along that line, he and his people will die. She gives him one hour to change his mind. And Dick turns to Barbara, eager to prepare for battle, but shockingly, she tells him that no. She's not going to help him out. She hasn't got the will to fight beings like them, and she doesn't think she could do anything against them. So Dick actually is shocked about this, but he decides to leave and go and pick up weapons from the Batcave, intent on fighting with or without her. And as Dick leaves, Barbara gets out her laptop. She has been forced to pretend that she's giving up because of the enemy's absorbicons. And the truth is that she does run the city, and while they gave her an hour to prepare for battle, she had already started fighting them ten minutes ago. And next up, we've got War of the Wing. Woo! Well, Convergence, we're seeing old school Babs Gordon back as Oracle. And, of course, I would say the real Dick Grayson. Overall, did you think that this particular book kept true to the nature of the characters and, and their voices? Did Gail Simone really latch on and, and have good voices for these characters? I think the the big thing with this is I think Simone kind of she nailed it. She you know she she I felt as if I was reading Barbara from Birds of Prey pre New Fifty Two, and I think that is a good thing. Um, as far as Dick Grayson, I didn't feel she was dead on with the interpretation, mm-hmm. but uh, I think it was it was close enough to make it worthwhile. Do you think this was better than what we've been seeing Dick as in New Fifty Two stuff? In some ways, I believe yes. I think this is a little bit more truer to the character than we've seen in the pages of Nightwing and uh, more recently in Grayson, at least from what I've been told and I've heard from mm-hmm. uh, the other podcasts. Right, right. Do you listen to the Batman? I know you said you listen to BTO once in a while. Do you all listen to the Batman Universe comic cast where we review all the Batman titles? I do listen to the comic cast. I like to know what's going on even though that I'm not reading the comics. It's nice that you guys at least review the books Mm -hmm. for those of us who don't feel the desire to, you know, pick up the new 52 the new 52 junk as i call it <laughs> yeah yeah you're certainly not alone uh, one of my friends donovan i'm sure you know you've heard him on here before he, he's sort of the same way still listens and keeps up with everything but but really isn't emotionally invested in it well starting off from the top of the the issue just with this intro page what did you think of just that first cover page where you see the different worlds that are involved you see inferno and and pre-Flashpoint and all that. Did that get you excited, or was that at all confusing for you? Just why are there five different worlds on here, but we're only going to be talking about two in this particular issue? Any thoughts on that? It was it was slightly confusing, because I wasn't sure if they were trying to show the worlds that were involved in mm-hmm. this one book, or if they were showing worlds that were involved in Convergence in general. Right. Uh, I didn't really understand the reason behind these pages. In the initial, I enjoyed the... The pages at the very end, the previews, right, yep. uh, or the character synopses mm-hmm. uh, of uh, of the characters and giving us a better, but it seems as if they were misplaced. The character pages feel like they should have been in the front and the world's possibly in the back as an afterthought. Yeah. yeah, I agree with you there. That would be great just so if people who jumped on with New 52 stuff, which is now, of course, called post-Flashpoint Universe, if they had jumped on there and weren't aware of these two characters' histories, they could have read up on that potentially first, almost as a previously in Oracle or Birds of Prey or whatever, and then gotten into the issue. I agree with that. Yeah, the, the, uh, the worlds was... It was interesting just because... 
before you read it, you see these worlds and you're not really sure which ones are going to be appearing in this book and you don't know until you read it. And then in other books, if you read other Convergence titles, of course, they change, so you'll see other ones. But I don't really know why they put three on there that aren't necessarily going to be at all represented in here. What was the opening with, with Hawkman, well, with the Hawk people? Do you think that it was necessary, given the fact that Hawkwoman later in the issue gives exposition and actually talks about what's going on? Do you think this was, well, I mean, what was the point of this besides showing, you know, dead alternate Earth JLA members? Do you think that these pages could have been used for something else, or did you like that it started off this way? I didn't necessarily have a problem with it, but uh, the, the the thing is, I don't care about the Hawk people in general. Uh-huh. Um, the, the, the comic is called Nightwing Oracle. I right. want more coverage of those characters. I don't care about the other characters. So uh, for me, less focus on the Hawk people, more focus on Nightwing Oracle, fine with me. Yeah, I totally agree. I think we get, you know, if we're trying to show the ruthless nature of these Hawk people, I think we get that when they start invading Gotham. And yeah, ex- you know, exactly what I was thinking is just why not start off with Nightwing and Oracle because that is the title. So why why go through all this? I, I do wonder why the Hawk people are, are following orders from a mysterious entity or, you know, these robots because they seem like they kind of march to the, the own beat of their or the beat of their own drum and don't really take orders from people. So that was interesting. But once we finally get to Nightwing and Oracle, I, I felt like, yes, this is this is what it was like in the past with Birds of Prey title and, and Nightwing and everything and just seeing him go to work with Oracle in his ear, I, I, I thought that that was great. I agree. I, I thought it was amazing that, uh, you know, despite the fact that it's Nightwing Oracle and there are focus on the Hawk people, I was surprised that they didn't introduce more characters from the, you know, pre-New 52 universe. Mm, yeah. Um, that supporting characters, mm-hmm. Birds of Prey characters and things like that. I was quite surprised that they didn't introduce any of them. But then again, like I said, Nightwing Oracle is the name of the comic. Right. That should be the focus. Yeah, maybe they're trying to keep it simple and not have it too cluttered with too many characters. Very possible. I, I don't... I, I'm, sh- I, I'm sure you're going to bring it up, but uh, Starfire... <laughs> oh, Yes! <laughs> in fact my main problem i mean why is Corey? and i will admit that you know she's in a more modest dress than she normally is but why is she in this issue what is the point i mean it it creates almost a a sort of conflict i feel if if people are picking this up i would almost say 90 percent sure that they are dick and bab shippers and to see Corey in here i feel like would create some sort of conflict not only with dick inside the pages but for readers i don't know there's also flirtation she's almost all over him even with her telling him you know you deserve to be happy but I, I just felt like I was being trolled by Tom Panarese are, are you a fan of Corey or are you a, a Dick and Babs shipper oh Dick and Babs all the way yeah no the thing with with Corey is that it feels as if Simone was trying to make a point that Dick was over her that's that's at least how I felt that that was the point of her showing up. But at the same time, it doesn't make a lot of sense because for the most part, again, the book is called Nightwing Oracle. Right. Why even have her show up? Exactly. It's, it's playing with the strings of people's hearts. Yeah, exactly. That beautifully said, sir. One person I did like popping up, though, well, two people. Uh, one was Freeze. 
I thought it was good to see that while some things have changed, I felt like other things were remaining constant, just that there are still villains going around and Freeze is up to no good. But I thought it a little strange that he fights to this extent. You know, he's even saying that he has tried it twice before. He's going after Nightwing. And then he just decides to throw up his hands and, and give up. And I wondered where, where that came from. What did you think about Freeze in this issue? I felt as if the reason he gave up was because he realized there's just no point to it anymore. I mean, he he says it doesn't matter. Take me into jail. Push me into the river because <laughs> there's there's no there's no there's no fun in it anymore. Yeah. You know, they're all stuck in this dome. Nobody yeah. knows where the dome came from. It's all there. You know, thankfully, compared to some of the other books, this book none of the characters have superpowers, so they don't focus on the fact that the characters don't have their powers and we have to deal with characters without powers for 20 something pages right. but the the thing is w- w- without you know a real challenge a lot of these villains feel they wouldn't feel the desire to do what they're doing mm-hmm. so you know i understand why they sh- had to show him there but it kind of begs the question of why was he doing in the first place if yeah. he was going to get caught and then give up yeah, exactly. Yeah, why go as far as he actually went? You know, he and, and what he's feeling, I feel like then we, we transition over to Babs and she's feeling in a very similar way. And I thought it was interesting that she had a pet rat. And when we think about uh, the next issue that we will, and the last issue that we will be reviewing uh, with the guinea pig scene and Convergence Batgirl, I just think it's symbolic of how Freeze and Babs are feeling under the dome, like this caged rat and she even says about, you know, running this endless treadmill that never ends. I am, you know, a literature nerd, but it it did remind me of a line from uh, Tennessee Williams' play, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, which I actually really love, uh, when Maggie says to her husband, Brick, I'm not living with you, we occupy the same cage it it just almost felt like that but you know I always felt like Dick was the one who really always needed to spread his wings and and could never be kept up in in any one enclosed space or you know he always likes to move around so did you think it seemed plausible that Babs was in fact the one in this issue that felt so cloistered and claustrophobic because of this dome I questioned it at first and I I do agree with you that Dick is probably the more likely character that would be the one who would feel more caged but if you look back to the 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 last couple story arcs of Birds of Prey pre-New 52 Barbara she leaves Gotham she moves to Metropolis. It feels as if she has a desire to, you know, spread her wings per se. Mm-hmm. So it feels as if maybe Simone was just linking onto that part of of her of her character, and that's why she was like this. Yeah, very true. And then we have lots of great interactions with them as a couple. I thought that they were great and really captured the the heart of them. But there was a proposal, and another one, if you think back to right before Infinite Crisis, before the one-year-later situation, and and Dick went off. But here, you know, Babs turns him down, whereas there she said yes. What did you think about her saying no to the proposal? It was kind of questionable, and I I didn't see where she was coming from. I Mm -hmm. Honestly, it it didn't make a lot of sense. I I mean, I guess they were playing into the idea of, you know, she felt caged and... You know, maybe she felt as if she was linked down or, you know, tied down to Dick Grayson because they were in the dome that maybe that was the easy route and she didn't want to take the easy route. I'm unsure. It didn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, obviously, in my in my shipper heart, I, I would love to see them be together and just her reasoning does seem strange that, you know, she feels like a caged rat and so... Th- 
you know, the marriage is going to, is that going to be a problem? I mean, they're in the dome. There's no way to get out of the dome. I feel like what you have to do is, is make the best out of this bad situation. And if you love this person, then perhaps they can make it bearable for you to live here. So it, it was... But, but maybe you know. she was, maybe her thing is that uh, she was set on having a destination wedding. Maybe that's what it is. <laughs> well, and she just, she realizes that because they're stuck in the dome, they can't they have can't that. Have, well, where do you expect Babs to go? Well, I mean, where where do you think Babs would want to go for her wedding, if this is true? Uh, the Piers of New Jersey. <laughs> Why can't it be more exotic, Richard? Because, how she, I, no offense to Babs, but I don't see her wheeling around on a beach. <laughs> You're so insensitive. No I'm not they- trying to be. I'm just being realistic. Okay. So when the Hawk people appear, it, it seems like Hawk Woman is uh, more the leader than Hawk Man. And I actually thought that this was really an interesting shift because it puts pressure on Babs as the female counterpart to Dick to really step up. Did you think this was strange at all that Hawk Woman was sort of wearing the pants in the Hawk family? Um, In some ways, I thought it was kind of strange, but... I'm not super familiar with the Elferno, uh, mm-hmm. you know, universe. I, yeah, I don't know yeah. much about it, so it's very difficult to know whether or not this would be true. I guess I'm too accustomed to, you know, the normal Hawkman leads the way with Hawk Woman or Hawk Girl being the one who, you know, is alongside him, but not mm-hmm. necessarily the leader. So I guess the problem is I, I I'm not the, the, matching some of these universes up with universes that are so. So unknown, it's very difficult to un- to know what the characteristics of these unknown universes, right. or I should say, little known universes, right. are, are. You know what the characteristics are supposed to mm-hmm. be, and whether or not they're dead on, or if they're completely different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you there. It was just weird that she was the one stepping up. You would expect Hawkman to be right there, but I mean, right off the bat, he says to Babs of all people, you know. I know you're the one who controls Gotham. So I think everything is switched already. And I think it's great that she's given that amount of power and respect, even though in the next issue she believes that she's underestimated. But we won't skip ahead there. I'm surprised when, when there's actually this fight, which is it's more of a talking issue and setup, I think. The next issue is really where we see everything come together. But Dick is taken down so easily, or I should say Nightwing. And then Babs, you know, just sitting there, not even attempting to fight, uh, was a little strange. You know, even considering the terms from the Hawk people, which I guess maybe you can start your stopwatch right there, and that's the 10 minutes. But did you think... It was believable that Nightwing would be just, I mean, he was smacked down really quickly. In some ways, I think it's possible. Uh, knowing the origin of the original Hawkman, again, I, this is a different one, so I don't know for sure. But the, the, I, 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 I do believe that Hawkman would be able to take, you know, Nightwing, in, in, you know, maybe not as easily as it was shown, but fairly easy. Mm-hmm. I believe it would be fairly easy. Okay. In, in that case, I, I have a problem with, you know, what happens in the second issue, which I don't really want to spoil, but it, it sort of makes this particular issue a liar. So I felt like there was an inconsistency there, but, you know, when we... Did you read the second issue? Because I know it came out recently. Yes, I have read the second issue. I didn't want to talk about it, but I'll, but I'll say this. Just with the fighting, I mean, because it changes with what happened here. With the with the fighting, you know, I'll just say this: I I enjoyed the way it was it was concluded. I I liked mm-hmm. the way that 
Oracle, she really was the one who with the plan, and Dick right. was just guns ho blazing. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, you know, for the most part, I, I I thought it was it was fine. I liked the way it wrapped up, and you know, overall. Uh, but for the fighting, eh, I don't think some of these characters are really meant to be facing each other in right. some ways. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess that's what makes Convergence so amazing because when else are you going to see Superman fight Captain Carrot or something like that? Uh, so. Amazing is probably a stretch, but uh, <laughs> okay. I'll go with you there. Okay. okay. Interesting? Is that a better word? Eh, okay, okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, the, the last thing that I, that I had a problem with and, and something that I didn't understand is why Babs was keeping it from Dick. And, and yeah, the Absorbicons was an issue. But just that she has her own agenda and her own plot attack, and she leads him to believe that she's not going to do anything. She's just going to sit there. I didn't think that was productive at all. I felt like they should have been a team, and she, being the brains of the outfit, should have been able to tell him in some way that she's on that team. So did you have a problem with this at all, seeing her in action when all this stuff was going down and and almost blatantly lying to Dick that she wasn't going to do anything? It's kind of questionable because of the circumstances. We're unsure whether or not she's maybe doing this because of possibly the fact that she said no to the proposal. Maybe it's because she doesn't want to have Dick involved in the fight and she's hoping that she can, you know, do the Oracle thing with the computers before he gets back from the cave. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's a lot of different options. I don't believe that the character should have lied to him. Um, I don't see that as as Barbara Gordon, but I I mean, I can understand some reasons that she would. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Last thought was I I skipped over Ivy. I did like seeing her here, and I thought, you know, it highlighted the potential that the character has always had in my mind and just her nature that, you know, she's devoted to plants, and maybe she's not bloodthirsty or maniacal, which I never thought she was. Did you like seeing Ivy pop up here, or do you think it was too much since we already had Freeze? I don't think it was too much at all. I think that it was was a perfect little cameo in the issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, She appeared in one panel, which... Didn't take too much away from everything else. Right. Uh, the explanation that uh, she's basically gone good and she's growing uh, food for everyone, I thought was great because I picture her as that character. She is basically turned herself into a human version of Mother Nature. There she wants go. to keep the people healthy, mm-hmm. and I, I think that I think it was a good little cameo. Thank you. Yeah, I agree with you. Well, what would you give this book out of ten bats? Out of 10 bats, eh, I'd say 7 bats. Okay. Uh, I'll raise you 1 and give 8 out of 10 bats. You know, initially when this issue or the story was solicited, it, it made me nervous. But I think Simone came through here. And besides some things that I don't necessarily agree with, cough, cough, Corey, the characters and their interactions felt really natural for I th- me. I think the, the biggest thing is with... All of the 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 garbage that Simone has put out over the last couple of years, mm-hmm. at least the way that I've heard that she has right. from listening to the comic cast and your cast, mm-hmm. it seems as if you know her groove is the pre New Fifty Two. I don't know if it's possible if Simone could write her own little pre New Fifty Two story, you know, ongoing story. But I think if she could, fans who may have not really liked her version of Batgirl, Mm -hmm. might actually like her character and enjoy her writing, unlike what she did with Barbara after the New 52. 
Yeah, 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 don't get me started there. But yeah, I think this is definitely her niche, and, and it didn't seem forced or anything, and I didn't have any of the problems that I had with her writing in the New 52 Batgirl. So this is kind of what I've been saying all along, that I felt like, you know, Gail Simone was just sort of pinched into a corner and told what to do, and it just wasn't working out. And with her having freedom, she's able to, to write as she can write so and be sure if you know to read those back pages fans and listeners uh because and appreciate them just the history and the devotion to the characters dustin would love that the history but you're if you're not sure where each of the panels are taken from be sure to go to the preview that i uh wrote up on the batman universe and i actually give all of them of of all the the comic issues that they appeared from well next up and finally our our last issue for this awesome and great episode 100 of Backroll Oracle is a not-so-awesome and great issue, Convergence Backroll number one, the love song of Stephanie Brown. Writers Alisa or Alyssa Quitney, Pensler, Rick Leonardi, inker Mark Pennington, and colorist Steve Bucciolato. As champions from Gotham City, Batgirl, Black Bat, and Red Robin are waiting in the desert of El Inferno, there it comes again, for an opponent to come. Batgirl wakes the others to relieve her from sentry duty so she can, well, in fact, relieve herself. Yes, she wants to go tinkle. But they initially suspect her of trying to run away from this responsibility. She denies it, but inwardly she believes that she would fail if an opponent did actually come for her. After she is gone, Tim wonders aloud why it was Stephanie who was chosen as a champion, and not him or Cassandra. Cass responds that perhaps it is because Stephanie is unpredictable. Awkwardly, Steph attempts to figure out how to easily get out of her uniform to do her business, but she is interrupted by Catman, who attacks her suddenly. He explains that he was fighting General Grodd in South Africa when he was transported to this place without warning. He notes that despite having Red Robin as backup, the young man appears to be smiling about something. Confused, Stephanie tries to question him about it, but he seems to be under the influence of something. Worriedly, she supposes that if Tim is affected, Cassandra might be in trouble too. She discovers Cassandra doing battle with Grodd himself, and the scene terrifies Stephanie. She knows that she was selected to be the champion, not Cassandra, but seeing Grodd, she can't help but fear that she was chosen by mistake. So then we flash back. A year ago, when the dome first appeared, she had seen how the people lost their composure. She saw how superheroes lost their powers. Even though she had no powers to lose, she lost her will to remain as Batgirl. So she became a nurse where she was needed and learned how to be a better Stephanie Brown than a Batgirl. When she helped deliver babies, her mind would drift back to the fact that she had a child somewhere beyond the dome. As she and the doctor she assisted walked home one night, they were held up by... (gasps) Killer Moth! But in this new situation, she couldn't muster any fear. She simply told him off and walked away. A new skill since quitting Batgirl, and apparently he accepts this. Under the dome, wearing a cape seemed to escalate conflict more than it really stopped it. She and Cassandra were living together, and as food was scarce, they had begun breeding guinea pigs for meat. But having fed their guinea pig for so long, Steph has given, she's grown attached to it, and she really didn't have the heart to kill and eat him. But Cassandra, because basically she's an inhuman being with no heart, apparently, uh, had no qualms, and Steph challenged that she would fight her for his life if she had to. Cass makes a move as if to punch, and Steph reacts defensively. Coldly, Cass points out that Steph's body language spoke of fear. 
Their inevitable argument was interrupted by a news broadcast reporting on the commands from beyond the dome. The news lists all of those from Gotham who were selected as champions, and Batgirl was among them. Not Black Bat, not Red Robin, but Batgirl. As it so happens, Cass had kept Steph uniform for her all this time, not washed, and after getting her back into it, Cass trained Stephanie, who increasingly felt like she had lost whatever it took to be Batgirl. And in her heyday, at least she had been a match for Tim, in combat and in love. Unfortunately, Steph's training was cut short by the stampeding Gothamites trying to get out of the city and beyond the dome. They had felt like prisoners in their own city for so long, and they wanted to experience some kind of freedom, only there was no telling what lay out there. So it was time for some on-the-job training for Steph instead, protecting people from themselves. After leaping down into the fray, Tim and Cass quickly lost track of Steph, but were surprised when they heard her voice over a megaphone. She warned the crowd that she had a tear gas grenade that would blind anyone within a one-block radius for upwards of six hours, and the threat ended up calming down the crowd somewhat. Unfortunately, moments later, apparently sentient spheres began to surround Steph and Cass and Tim and carry her away. And Tim and Cass grab onto her, try and pull her back, but they were taken with her to El Inferno and to be continued. So basically, the end of this issue would then go to the beginning of this issue. That's kind of how it went. So there we are. We'll be in present time, maybe next issue so to be continued on this one. Oh, well my biggest complaint is something that runs throughout the entire issue and it's that simply the writer simply and awfully the writer does not understand these characters and their relationships so really when I'm reading this book I'm reading a bunch of strangers that have on clothing that I recognize interacting what are your thoughts on the writer understanding these characters and who they are I don't feel like she understands them at all I mean the yeah. the, big, the thing is it feels as if she was kind of just thrown these characters and said do something with it so to make it make it make sense but I don't even feel like she made it make sense uh, these characters, none of them have the characteristics we knew pre-New 52. I mean, I, I assume these characters are supposed to be in the pre-Flashpoint pre Gotham City, similar as Nightwing and Oracle. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's so many different things that I don't understand. Barbara and Dick are in Gotham City. These guys are not. They're not in Gotham City for whatever reason. It doesn't. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any sense as to why we would take these characters out of the place that makes the most sense and stick them in some other area. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, the the thing the the, the the writer just doesn't understand that these characters. Are, it, it's almost as if she's taking characters characteristics of some of these characters from the current universe and maybe even from the late 90s and applying it towards the characters it doesn't it just doesn't make it this is not the characters especially the fact that they have the distinct costumes on they should have the distinct personality as right. they had when they were were those those uh, heroes absolutely absolutely you know you said you play uh, video games from the you know previous 15 years or 15 years ago mortal Kombat. does this sort of seem like a mortal Kombat situation with convergence well with this particular title just where people are swooped up and then they're dropped into an arena to fight off against some random person 
it almost actually feels like uh, a couple. This was uh, like just, I'd say about maybe six years ago. There was that DC vs Mortal Kombat game. Oh yeah, that's even more how it feels, as because you're taking characters from two completely different universes mm-hmm. and dropping them and having them face each other. It doesn't make any sense. Right. There's no real storyline to it. Mm-hmm. The, the, that's the problem with this whole convergence thing. Is every uh, one of these number ones of these two issue miniseries? They take place, and it's it's it's. We have to have the Telos coming in and saying, "You must fight." Ah. <laughs> and and yeah. it, the the problem is, it doesn't. Nobody cares. We don't need to keep hearing it over and over again. You could have mm-hmm. said that in Convergence one the first week and got it over with, and then just told stories. You know, if they wanted to break up these stories and and tell both universes. Uh, story as we've seen in some of these issues we've seen some issues uh, deal with you know the, the title characters and we've seen other issues deal with both characters the both groups uh, I, I'm thinking of uh, Teen Titans how they the new Teen Titans convergence issue mm-hmm. they focused on the new Teen Titans but at the same time they were focusing on the Doom Patrol the issue is not called Doom Patrol but the <laughs> Doom Patrol got yeah. probably a third of the book yeah. You know, even with Nightwing Oracle, we had a good yeah. chunk of the yeah. book deal with the Hawk people. Mm-hmm. That's not who anybody was buying the book wanted to read about. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I can't really say it better. Yeah, I I don't know. I, I don't really understand, I, I think, the purpose of Convergence besides... <laughs> it's a waiting game. It's a waiting yeah. <laughs> game for DC to get their crap together. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know. You know, do you feel like... The issues, I mean, do you feel like there was a meeting at DC and basically it was almost like a Mad Libs page where everything was, you know, the the general story plot was filled in, but you just had to fill in like Nightwing or you just had to fill in the character because it seems like the same story is basically happening over all of the Convergence books. It just changes depending on the people involved. I, I would definitely agree. I think the the biggest problem is that it is it's as you say, Madlib, uh the uh the you know, the 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 stories are the same. The the only thing that ends up being interesting about any of these stories is how they make the characters exist in the future of their own world. Mm-hmm. We see Dick and Barbara, they we see them get married at right. the end of number two. Is, I know it's a spoiler, I apologize. That's spoiler. That's, yeah. But uh, at the same time, you know, it's nice to see that that could have possibly occurred in that universe. Yeah. Uh, with with uh, the with some of the other stories, you know, it, 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 I don't know, it just don't work. Right, right. Well, to get back to this one, because I'm sure we could talk about Convergence and just what it's doing for hours. The, another big problem I have, well, I guess it stems from the main problem I have, is how Steph is being treated in here. And I just felt like the whole issue, and it actually makes me upset, this whole issue turns into a Steph bashing issue. And not only coming from Cass and Tim, who are, I, I wouldn't say hateful, but not, not I mean, they're not nice to her and, and not respectful, I think, of, of who she was. But from Steph herself, who's, who's very down on herself. And given how he ended the Brian Q. Miller run, I, we should not be back at issue number one for her, you know, back before or, you know, in the beginning or even when she was spoiler or as she was Robin with, with Batman, any of those, you know, with her low, self, low self-esteem or low confidence and, and other people seeing her as pointless and not being able to handle herself. And, you know, this is the theme here for this issue. And that, that right there is a travesty and, and terrible for for any Steph fan to to read are you at all invested in the Stephanie Brown character and and how did this feel for you to to read this like this 
I I enjoy Stephanie Brown, but the the problem is that this is not the Stephanie Brown that I enjoy. Yeah. This feels as if it's the Stephanie Brown uh, right around the time of War Games. Oh, uh, that's yeah. and and I don't know very many people who enjoy that character. the The yeah. problem is that it feels as if somebody at DC said, "Okay, we don't have anybody. We can't get Brian Q. Miller. We can't get <laughs> even Phoebe in the size. Uh, we mm. can't get." You know, we we can't get anybody who actually wrote these characters before. So let's find somebody who can just write a story. Mm-hmm. They found this this Kit Whitley, Kit Whitley, whoa, whoa, uh, whatever. <laughs> they they found they found this person and they said, I don't even I'm not familiar with if she's ever even done anything else at DC. But it feels as if they they might have walked outside their offices in New York and said, Hey, who wants a job? And they said, Okay, we give you we give you these pieces of uh, reference material, and they gave her the they gave her the probably the worst pieces of reference material they could have given her to 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 have her understand who these characters were. And no no offense to w- Wiki or. <laughs> You know, wicked or wicked. You know, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. No offense to her because I don't know the situation, but it just doesn't feel as if this. It's not the thing is with you know no the, we don't know what the the situation with Waka Waka is you know we don't know if Waka Waka or Wick Wiki or, I'm sorry I'm sorry I don't know I don't know how to say it but I don't know what her situation is we don't know where she came from and the problem is that. I think she she already had a lot of bad things going for her since she was announced on the book. And we had others titles that had people who were so ingrained with the characters attached to them. Gail Simone with Oracle and Marv Wolfman did the Teen Titans. When those are characters, those are writers that you would immediately say these writers deserve to tell the stories of their characters from back in the day. The problem is we don't know where Witwicky comes from. So the problem is she already had a lot of people not looking forward to her story because nobody knows if she could actually write good stories with these characters in the first place. So that already was a bad thing on her. The, 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 the characters here, it, it just, it, it doesn't come across as they, they used good material or she wasn't completely versed in the entire idea of who these characters became up to the point before the new 52 which is what we are led to believe these characters exist yeah that that was one of my i wrote an article about you know why convergence breaks my heart and that was one of my arguments is that if you're going to do this you need to have across the board writers that are really in tuned with these characters and this was one of the ones that concerned me because I don't know who she is is basically and you know I'm all about giving people chances but from this oh boy that that was a a fail I'm afraid and uh Donovan uh sent me an image of of some I, it was uh something on her website I, I think she writes like romance comedies or or something like that maybe short short stories or I don't know if they're online comics I don't know but you know she was saying what she was doing which was you know writing this book and at one point on the post she says I'm writing Stephanie Bond Stephanie Bond Batgirl and I thought to myself who is Stephanie Bond because uh, I know a Stephanie Brown but not a Stephanie Bond so that could be a typo obviously but I'm thinking to myself if I'm looking at my keyboard um, you know I don't know no about typo, that. So, no typo. She yeah, yeah, know who exactly. She yeah, and, and you know, you're saying given reference material. I, pff, who knows? I mean, she could have gone on Wikipedia and figure, you know, and and this is what we got. This the Wikipedia entry was how we got Steph portrayed here. But in in any case, it was a 
character assassination. I would like to say. For, I, for I'm Seth. looking. I'm looking at her list of stuff she's done, and it seems uh-huh. the most stuff that she's done for DC is Vertigo stuff. Uh, the oh. Dreaming, Sandman, Shade, the Changing Man, Mobfire. Oh. Those are the ones that she's been linked to the most. Those are the ones that she's had the most appearances on. So. Uh-huh. It's still a very interesting decision to take a character that has been writing vertical characters and put them on a book that is focusing mostly on Stephanie Brown, who mm-hmm. is probably so far from the vertical universe right. you can imagine. Well, something that I just hated was the fact that Steph, you know, a beloved character, uh, I feel like we embarrass her. And uh, just why would anyone think it a good idea to show her attempting to go to the bathroom? Why why are we taking up panel panel space with this? Any thoughts on this, or is it just me that like thought it was really dumb? The the problem I have with that scene is that it comes across as what's the point of it? Yeah. Seriously, what is the point? I mean, have we all asked the question to ourselves? How do superheroes go to the bathroom? Ah, uh, maybe, maybe we have. I have. I have no problem admitting I've wondered how they get out of their suits to use the bathroom. How can you be on patrol all night to not use the bathroom? But yeah. is it really necessary for us to be to, to see it? And the fact that she has to eventually disrobe down to her nothing but <sighs> her undergarments yeah. doesn't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you think about, I mean, Disney movies... I mean, where in any of the Disney movies have you seen a character go to the bathroom? I mean, even in Lion King, no one has gone to the bathroom. So, it you know, keep to the story, not to these. We understand that people have, by nature, the need to go to the bathroom. There's, but I feel like there's certain was... things you show and there's certain exactly. things you don't. Exactly. We complain all the time about things happening off panel. This is one of those things where nobody's complaining that it happens off panel. <laughs> exactly. I agree with you. Yeah. You know, one positive thing, I did like seeing Steph, you know, once she got rid of the back row garb, which I didn't really understand. But you, I liked seeing her help out in other ways, like nursing, which something which was a callback to her mother. And very reminiscent, in a way, of Barbara Gordon in, in the pre-crisis, just the fact that once she lost her congressional seat, she found other ways to, to help out Gotham City. So I do like that she wasn't just sitting on her laurels and was, was helping out, but I do wonder where is her mother at all of this time. Did you like uh, that she turned into a nurse and was helping out and, and using her skills and not just sitting around? I feel as if it's slightly con- con- convenient for her to, you know, be a nurse similar to the way her mother was mm-hmm. uh, in the medical field. But I think the problem with her character is, uh, you know, you asked, you know, where is her mother in all of this? You know, the problem is that these characters are stuck in Metropolis for whatever reason. You asked the question of where, how the how, where's her, where's Stephanie's mother, and I think mm-hmm. the problem is you know the we 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 seemingly forget that these characters are stuck in Metropolis. We don't understand why they're in Metropolis. Mm-hmm. Of all the places that these characters should appear, Metropolis is probably bottom of the list. Um, maybe not bottom of the list. I don't believe that. Probably bottom of the list is Atlantis. I don't know. But uh, the, the, the thing is, it doesn't make any sense. We, we don't see them being able to interact with the other characters from their own universe. And I think that's the problem. The, the, they try to alienate these characters in their own little city away from all of the characters that we would know and appreciate the supporting characters from their lines because, the, because they wanted to focus only solely on these three characters, which in some ways doesn't make any sense because we see characters from Gotham City appear in this. 
Killer Moth? What does Killer Moth appear in Metropolis for? Hey, hey, Richard, I think you're a little confused because this is not happening in Metropolis, but in Gotham. So I'm not sure where you're getting that Metropolis from. Well, I thought I, I believed I read on the uh, Batman Universe website uh, the review for this. I didn't understand where it was taking place. There's a lot of of these stories that are taking place in other cities than right. that they were, and I could have swore I read um, uh, Mr. Donovan's uh, article a review, and he said that it was taking place in Metropolis. So if I'm mistaken, I apologize, and I guess my entire rant that I've been going on about is completely irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> but then I guess I'd have another rant, which is, then why don't we see these other characters? Where is yeah. Stephanie's mother? It doesn't make any uh -huh. sense. There's a lot of problems with these. Yeah, it's almost like there's a dome within the dome where, you know, Nightwing and Oracle are within this little other part, and then we have these people. Yeah, not not really sure about that. But, you know, you bring up Killer Moth, and, and I am a confessed Killer Moth lover. But, you know, what a strange experience. Yeah, I mean, he pops out of the... It's very much like... Mr. Freeze where they're up to the same no good but you know he pops out there and Seth doesn't even fight him physically she just yells at him and he walks away and uh, that's another sort of what is the point I mean I love seeing him but that I think I think the Freeze had a point that that appearance but this one not as much for me. Steph and Cass, you know, a great relationship that I love. I actually read the entire, I guess, 73 maybe issues of the of the Cassandra Kane Batgirl run. And it, it just does not show itself here. And, you know, then we have this scene with, with the guinea pig, which was weird. And it's almost going to come to blows. And Cass's analysis of Steph's body language almost seems like a slap in the face rather than constructive criticism. And it's just not, again, I'm, I'm just reading strangers. What do you think about the relationship between these two that used to be close pre-Flashpoint, but now are this? I think it's a combination of the problem that they they both probably feel as if they are they're also caged, similar to the way that Simone was trying to make it seem as if Barbara Gordon was feeling. So they probably are both feeling caged. Cassandra, I don't feel as if she is in any way the character that uh, she was pre-New 52, as this yeah. is seemingly taking place. And I guess what uh, you were saying earlier about the fact that this is taking place in Gotham City, that does explain why it says pre-Flashpoint Gotham City on the first page. Right. And, then, and, th and then that makes sense then, but the problem is that uh, we... We see these characters, and they're not the characters that we we uh, were, were familiar with pre New Fifty Two, and that's the biggest problem. the The relationship between the two of them is is almost as if they're butting heads constantly, yeah. and it doesn't feel as if that is the way the characters should be portrayed. Mm -mm, definitely not. And I mean, they're roommates, so you'd think there's some relationship there, but even though they live together, I guess they fight over guinea pigs. It's about roasting the guinea pigs, I think. The one wants, uh, Cassandra wants to eat it. She needs her meat intake, I guess. Right. And Stephanie, she's, you know, she's not having any of that. Uh, she, she, she joined PETA. Okay. Uh, do you think, as a person living under the dome, you'd be okay with eating guinea pigs? Uh, me personally, never eat a guinea pig. It's the equivalent of a, a oversized fat rat. Never happened. Trust me, I work with garbage on a daily basis. You don't want to be working with guinea pigs and eating them. There's too many tiny bones. Uh, have you read The Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller? 
Yes, I definitely have. When you you may have to turn to it in your book, but Bethany Snow, that news reporter that that pops up, doesn't she seem like a talking head from the Dark Knight? I mean, the haircut and and the earrings and everything. Ever- yes, yes, she definitely does, and I find it's quite interesting that they decided to actually have the character named Bethany Snow. Uh-huh. I know it was a background thing and not that big of a deal, but Bethany Snow is the character that was created for those new Fifty Two back right? uh, the last page couple things yep. part of Channel Channel Fifty Two. So the problem is that you have this character who did not even exist, but she's somehow making a cameo within the pages of these books that take place prior to the character even existing. Yeah, I I can't explain that. I I recognized her name right away. I think she's also somebody who pops up on... It's either the Flash or the Arrow. Sometimes you'll see Arrow. the news book. It's, yeah. it's Arrow. I yeah, watched this show that. religiously. Yes. I Awesome show. Awesome. Yeah, we should have talked about that. I didn't know you were a fan of those. Good, green Batman all the way. Green Batman? Do you really think so? Almost definitely. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, do you think Batman would ever become Rachel Ghoul? No, but I think if you've watched the most recent episode, he's actually trying to trick him. <laughs> yeah, it's very true. Yeah, I did watch it. Yeah, if you think about it, it is very similar to something, you know, propositions that, that Raish or Roz has made in the past to Batman, you know, detective, you need to take my place. So that's, you know, I, I at first I thought it was a laughable uh, analogy, but it really I'll just, is I'll Batman. just say these. Uh, uh-huh. Slightly convenient how Roy Harper's new identity's name is Jason. Just saying. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Okay. That's something to ponder. Well, anyways, back to this wonderful slash horrible issue. Steph being out of shape, you know, she complains about it, and and in her training she doesn't do a great job. But I feel like even if you are maybe out of shape, I think you would retain those instincts and skills that have been built up over so long and almost beaten into you. I mean, by Batman and, and by Barbara by everyone. Do you think, you know, if Batman took some time off after so long of doing it, do you think he'd come back? Well, he kind of does, right? Dark. We just mentioned it, Dark Knight Returns. He was able to, even though he was older, he had taken off some time, he was able to jump right in. So don't you think the same would be true of Steph, or do you think it's just a completely different animal and Steph is not Bruce Wayne, so it doesn't apply? In some ways, I believe that you, I, as anybody who has the training that they have should be able to jump right back into it. It's like riding a bike. Yeah. You just get back on the bike, mm-hmm. and then you know exactly how to do it. Right. The problem is that this, this isn't a character who – it seems as if this character was written as if they don't know exactly what they're doing because they haven't had the correct training. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem. The character, as we've said, is is not the character that should, it should be in the time frame that it should be. Uh, so the problem is that we have the character doing things that we would not expect the character to do. Mm-hmm. The character should be able to just jump right into it and not be second-guessing themselves the entire time. Yeah, I agree with you there. My final positive, I think, is... Uh, Steph on the bridge, I felt like we, for one moment, got a glimpse of who Steph was, you know, in Brian Q. Moore's run. Just she's using her smarts and, and her quirky personality to, to calm people down, of course, lying to them. But that was Steph, I think. But that was just blink and you miss it. And then we have this other, this uh, hybrid of someone we don't know and a Stephanie Brown. It's Stephanie Bond and Stephanie Brown all together. 
Yeah, so the flying orbs come, and why in the world do they take all three of them and not just Batgirl? I don't really know. But my last question for you, Richard, is just the nature and the, the, what's the best way of doing it? This wasn't really a linear story. We started off in present time, and then we flashed back, and then we almost got up to the point where we left off in present time. Do you think it would have made more sense to start off with, you know, who's Steph- I'm Stephanie Brown, this is who I was in the past, I gave it up, and then, you know, start off from the past and then go and she's taken and then end up with Gorilla Grodd. Like, that be the last page where Gorilla Grodd is, is attacking. Or did you like the way that this was told? I, there was a lot of problems with the way it was told. I, I was very confused because there was some points where it made... Uh, I, I can't say that. It made no sense to me very much at all. The The problem is Catman appears out of nowhere. Didn't make a lot of sense. They they bump into Gorilla Grodd, but then the next page she's she's dealing with a zoo and then she's stripping down into her undergarments yeah. in the panel yeah. on that page. It doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. So I feel as if uh, they were trying to do something unique, but it did not come across as unique. It came across as extremely confusing. Yeah, you, you mentioned that weird zoo scene, and it's funny because you said PETA. And I don't know why that was the catalyst for her giving up her bat suit. She's, like, weeping over a lion, and that's it. She's done. A lion died. I, I didn't get that. Did you glean anything from from that whole situation? Well, that's why I said the reason about... Uh, that's why I said the reason about uh, PETA, because right, she's yeah. so upset about, you know, the the... the the people who broke the animals out of the zoo, right. they were holding up signs that said free range. And the one of so, somebody, it looked like the lion killed a man who was holding the sign free range, at least mm-hmm. the way it was portrayed. Yeah. The police officer in turn shot the lion and killed the lion. And then she decides to give up. But the problem, I guess, is maybe she gives up. The way the panels come across, it comes across as if she gives up, takes off her mask, takes off the entire costume and then walks off in her undergarments in the middle of Gotham City Zoo. It doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Who walks through the zoo in their underwear? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. The way you laid that out was so laughable because it's so absurd and it actually happened. But yes, but the thing is, what I was reading and I was thinking to myself, is this cutting back to when she had to go tinkle? I don't know. We don't know if this is when she wants to go tinkle or if this is some other time when she she was she she's walking through the zoo in her underwear. It doesn't make any sense. You know, we have a couple panels ago she's trying to take off her costume and then if if this isn't the same situation, why is it that she's taking off her costume again? What is the fascination with her taking off her costume and getting down to her undergarments? It doesn't make any sense whether she has to tinkle or she wants to take a uh, leisurely walk through the zoo. You should not be doing this in a comic book. I Yeah, I, I agree. I'm not really sure where the, the writer's head is at with this. And that's, I mean... Yeah, th- this was just not a good issue, um, and I feel the, like we I feel could... I feel as if there's some sort of desire from the writer to have these characters in their undergarments. We see a, a couple pages later, Cassandra take off her backer costume huh. in front, down to her undergarments as well. What is the fascination? <laughs> this happens three separate times in the issue. I maybe it's a uh, a Haynes or a Fruit of the Loom ad. It could be. That, that's very possible. Add for sports bras. Yeah, who knows. Out of ten guinea pigs, what do you think you would give this issue? Ooh, ooh guinea pigs. Ah. 
Uh, I see three guinea pigs. Three <laughs> guinea pigs. Enough to fill I, the belly. Enough, well, you said there are too many tiny bones. But there's still enough to fill the belly. I'm, again, going to raise you one for whatever reason, but I, I, yeah, I gave it two over on the TBU, so I kind of have to times it by two. It four out of ten guinea pigs. Bes- besides some minor positives, this was just a bad issue with terrible characterizations and interactions between the characters. And what a, I mean, what a travesty to see the character like this, to maybe get excited about seeing her again. And, and Or all three of them, you know, you cast Kane fans have been waiting for so long, and this is what you get. So let's hope that we see a better Stephanie Brown in the post-Flashpoint universe and she has come back as spoiler it seems as if the uh gail simone new 52 future zen story featuring cassandra was a better story than this yeah. and that took place in new 52 right yeah and yeah the future zen when they have all those back rolls running around yep th- th- that's definitely what you want to see and not this garbage or rubbish as you would say yes well, that's it. That that is it for for you know. I'm sorry you you had a terrible issue, but you also had a had a good one. Yes, but, one one good one, one bad one. That's not so bad. Yeah, it could be much worse. It, we it, could it, have had two <laughs> crap, two pieces <laughs> of crap. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Which which certainly I've experienced on on the Batman universe. But but I feel like we're in a better area era with TBU. And you know, if you want to give you know it a chance there are some some good titles out there that certainly i keep hearing good things like you say on back of the oracle about the new backer run I, yes. I think i might be picking up the first trade and getting caught up and awesome. seeing what's all seeing what all the ruckus is about yeah i would definitely recommend gotham academy as well another fun title with with great characters you got um, to love the fun titles so yeah. much stuff is so dark nowadays yeah i agree with you there yep yeah well, is there anything else you'd like to put out there before you go, since this is the first time, and, and who knows when you're going to be on again, Richard? So, I mean, any parting words or anything for our listeners? You know, 100, 100 episodes that they've been listening, so is there any any words of wisdom that you would like to give as a rubbish man? As a rubbish man, I can tell you there's a lot of rubbish out there. You skim the iTunes podcast categories, and there's a lot of rubbish out there. There's a lot of rubbish all over the world. But I can tell you one thing. Backer to Oracle is not rubbish. It's not rubbish at all. It is gold. If I find a Backer to Oracle sitting in a garbage can, I take it out and keep it for myself. That's what I do because that is not rubbish. So anybody who has made it to 100 episodes has done a fine job. And I have greatly appreciated being able to listen to this show. And I appreciate you taking on my, my, my older sister. Of course, yeah. You know, I, I miss her a great deal. We don't actually do a lot of news on here anymore. I feel like because I'm on the Batman universe, that's, you know, where, where people can get a healthy dose of, of news. But she is certainly missed by, by fans. She was a fan favorite. But, but you did a great job, and I really appreciate it. Those are kind words to, to say that in this world of rubbish that Batgirl Oracle is gold and that, that if you found her, you would keep her. So I, I'm, very, uh, I'm very appreciative of that, Richard. No problem. It's well-deserved on your part. And I have to say, you know, I understand that you don't cover the news because of, uh, you know, that, uh, that, that dusting guy. Oh, you know, yeah. just tell him to stuff it. Oh, dear. Well, he, 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 he wouldn't take kindly to that. I'm sure he's not listening. 
That's true, because I think he trusts me enough now that I just sent him my episode and he posts it, so we could potentially say anything about him we wanted to. We should. Let's have a conversation about it. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I mean, what are your impressions of him? Because you said you follow. What do you think about him? Do you think he's a dark and brooding character, or do you think he, he has a heart of gold? He probably is a teddy bear, a oh. big fluffy teddy bear uh-huh. who has this this giant coat of armor that nobody really knows how to break. That's probably what it's all about. He's he's a dark brooding character because he's a character of himself. But deep down inside, he's probably a fluffball. Oh, okay. You know, I, I think it comes through on some of these episodes. Now, one thing, one funny thing that happened was uh, I asked him one day, because he does the editing, and I asked him about, you know, did you keep such and such in on the uh, on the bloopers? Because sometimes really funny things happen, and I'm looking forward to it. What together. happened to the bloopers? Yes, he does bloopers. Do blo- yes! Bloopers have disappeared. Yes! bloopers anymore and i said dustin don't you know it was amazing don't you want to he he did something i can't remember what it was but i said dustin don't you want to endear yourself to the audience and he said no i have a reputation to uphold so don't you think being light you know every once in a while and, and cracking a joke or making a marvel reference would be you know people would really cling to that and appreciate him all the more as a host I'm not sure if they would appreciate the Marvel reference. Oh. He don't read Marvel, so he doesn't <laughs> understand it. Okay. But uh, but the reality is, I think, uh, yes, a joke every once in a while would, would make things a little bit more light and friendly. The problem why he doesn't have very many friends is because he's not very happy. He's not a happy man. He's a very... He's, a very, he's not happy. Well, he doesn't come across as a happy man. He comes across as a man who has who has no who no, he like I said he's probably a fluff ball. Yeah, but a teddy bear. How can a teddy yes, bear not be but happy? A, but but when he appears to the world, he has this this thick coat of armor or thick skin that nobody can can get close to, and it's because that thick armor is is, is made up of all of his dark brooding nature that he has to personify in, in front of everyone. Okay, so Marvel reference, he's basically like penance is what you're saying. He's got this thing that, I don't know, makes him super angry. I don't I don't know if I agree with you on that. You're almost making him sound like Bane on the outside and, I don't know, a Care Bear on the inside. That's pretty much how he is. He is Bane. Okay. Bane has, Bane's that big brooding man, but deep down inside all he wants is his teddy bear. Well, that is true if you've read Chuck Dixon's Bane Vengeance, or Vengeance of Bane, whatever it's called. <sighs> well, you know, I mean, don't you think he's a good leader, though, of the of the podcast and of of what he's made, this legacy of the Batman universe? I mean, he took on Batgirl the Oracle. I, who knows if I would have been on episode 100 if he hadn't taken me in. I suppose, I suppose. But that he doesn't deserve the credit. You're the one who's creating the gold. <laughs> he, he's just there to put it there. <laughs> He's picking up the gold from the rubbish. Yeah, it's like he's he's uh he's uh a corporate entity uh-huh. scooping up the little guys. Oh. Because he can't create good stuff on his own. Wow. Do you think it's at all possible that Batgirl the Oracle could take over the Batman universe? Oh, entirely. I think it's entirely possible. Okay. Cuz I I said this once and he I don't know if he appreciated it. Like I said, <laughs> Tell him to stuff it. <laughs> well, I'll follow your directions and I'll see if he fires me or not. But uh, no, he can't uh, fire you. Well, you know, I don't know. He threatens or I threaten. Who knows? One day it may happen. It'd be a scary and sad day for me. But 
last thing, apart from Dustin, uh, do you watch the Gotham TV series? Yes, I do. do very, you? very good show. What? Do you actually like Gotham? Yes, I'm a couple episodes behind because over here on this side of the pond, we don't yeah. get to see the episodes right away. So I'm a couple episodes behind what okay. you in America have seen. Right. But I love the show. Oh. It's a great show. Do you have a favorite character? Baba Keen! Oh, heavens. I don't know if we can be friends much longer, Richard. She's a terrible character. You try to defend Barbara Keen right now before you leave this episode. Barbara Keen, the reality is she's a troubled soul. She just needs the right person to give her a firm hand. That's all. A firm hand? A firm hand. You she needs someone to take control. That's <laughs> what she's looking for. My gosh, D Jim! Jim clearly is not that man. No. He's not the man who can give her a firm hand. Oh dear! It's not him. Okay. She needs a man. She just needs a firm hand. That's the problem. She she needs someone who can put her in her place. Mm -hmm. That's the the reality. And I know that's probably not the best thing to say, but Jim is not that person. He's too busy wrapped up in solving Bruce Wayne's murder, uh, parents' murder, or the. Uh, the freak of the week. Yeah. Uh, and the thing is, I, I feel as if they don't focus on the character enough. I feel as if the character needs a lot more focus. Maybe involve her in a, in a, in a storyline. I hear she's supposed to be involved in the upcoming Olga storyline. Yeah. I cannot wait for that. Yeah, I don't want to spoil anything. I, I, I will. I don't like the character. I, I think just, ugh. No point. Pointless. But I will say that the Ogre storyline I thought was, you know, the best arc that, that we've had and actually pushed her in a new direction, though the fallout was something that was unexpected. So you may or may not like it. You'll have to email me once you see these final four episodes and, oh, and tell I will. me how you like it. Yeah. Any thoughts on Fish? Do you like Fish Mooney? Uh, fish, uh, not such a fan of her hair. I feel as if she needs a different leave. But, uh, yeah, it, uh... Uh, I feel as if they lost focus. They they had a yeah. point in the beginning of the season, but uh, they lost focus with the character. The Dollmaker thing, I don't understand the point. She's not involved with any of the other characters. It's it's basically creating her story so that she can have something to be in. Because mm -hmm. right now she she's not in any of the other character stories, and it's not working. Yeah. <sighs> well... I don't like it. I'm glad you like it, but I'm not liking it as much. So I hope that it gets better in the next season. Well, I guess we should bid adieu. It's funny because whenever you speak, I, I think of, of, of Lucky and his charms. Do you eat Lucky charms, or is that just a terribly offensive thing to ask? It is a terribly offensive things. <laughs> Why would you ask me about me Lucky charms? <laughs> well, you did say that Barbara would have trouble wheeling her wheelchair on a beach so I guess it's par for the course ah, I don't think so that's very offensive <laughs> I apologize Richard I uh, forgive you I forgive. Oh, thank you well thanks again for coming on not the problem I hope to be on sometime maybe in the next hundred episodes that'd be amazing maybe doing a suicide squad story or something maybe who knows who knows indeed well be safe out there with all that rubbish and I hope you find some gold pieces. I already have with BTO. Oh, thank you. Now over to Chris for his Batman 66 review. Hey, thanks, Stella. I'd like to wish you congratulations on your 100th episode. This is a huge milestone. I'm honored to be a part of your show, and good luck to 100 more. As always, I appreciate you letting me give you a little break. 
Hello, Bat fans. Welcome once again to the Batman 66 review segment. I'm glad to be with you today. Thanks for downloading. And as always, thank you for not fast-forwarding. I'm Chris, and this is the segment where I review the Batman 66 title. Today, I'll look at Batman 66, number 22, cover dated June 2015. This issue's story has two parts. The first entitled, The Penguin Turns the Table, and part two is, Batman Shows He's Able. This was written by Mike W. Barr and art by Michael Avon Omeg. The cover art was provided once again by Michael and Laura Allred, and the contents were originally released in download format. After being thwarted from getting away with the loot in a series of Penguin-related crimes, the Penguin decides to change his modus operandi and do a series of Bat-related crimes. This initially confuses our heroes until Batman deduces what the Penguin is up to, even figuring out who is supplying the Penguin the Bat-related information. One Professor Carstairs, a discredited professor of zoology. Carstairs tells the duo of the Penguin's next caper, and the duo rush to the location only to walk into a bat trap, and finding themselves encased in plexiglass shields with vampire bats. Batman adjusts the frequency output on his bat radio to stun the bats, and our heroes manage to escape. Figuring that Carstairs tipped the Penguin off, Batman goes back to his office and takes his place, and gives the Penguin and his henchmen another bat-related target. Now I wonder why he just didn't try to capture him right then and there at this point. The ruse fails as the Penguin steals a bat during a kid's baseball game at the Gotham Orphanage, attended by Aunt Harriet, no less. Meanwhile, at Stately Wayne Manor, home of millionaire Bruce Wayne and his youthful ward, Dick Grayson, Bruce and Dick hear that their plan backfired, and the Penguin somehow knew of the ruse. As the Penguin knows that the duel will be ready when he next will strike, at the Gotham Umbrella Works, he will have a trap waiting for them. But this now backfires on the Penguin, and after a bat fight, the dynamic duo come out victorious. The end. I liked Mike W. Barr's writing here. He divided the story into two rhyming chapter names, which was used throughout most of the TV show's run. He gave us a cliffhanger, and spot-on dialogue from the characters. A solid story. I hope he'll come back. I thought Omeg's art was a bit cartoonish for my taste, but Tony Avina's color did a great job of enhancing it. The All Reds cover was reminiscent of a Golden Age cover to Batman, and that was Batman issue number 16, so if you're online now, check it out to compare and contrast. Now, while we just had the Penguin in the last issue, and it was a bit soon for another appearance, judging this issue on its standalone merits, this pretty much had all the elements I wanted from a Batman 66 comic, and I'm giving this 8 out of 10 bats. How will Solomon Grundy, Falseface, and Clayface all come to appear in the next issue of Batman 66? What plans does Marsha, Queen of Diamonds, have for a future issue? What plans does Stella have for her next 100 episodes? These and other confounding questions to be answered next time. Same Stella time. Same Stella sight. Thanks, Chris. So instead of a Babs in the Tube segment or my literature recommendation, or even Chipper Spotlight. I've decided to take up this time slot to do a Batgirl to Oracle look back over these over these 100 episodes. In a way, it is a Shipper Spotlight because it's almost like shipping me with my own podcast. So what I did was I, I went through the history of Batgirl to Oracle, and I picked the 10, I think, most memorable moments from the 100 episodes. Now these are actually in no particular order. If there is any order with them, it's by 
sequence by episode number. So, you know, if if you're wondering, you know, why is number 10 da-da-da-da-da and not number one, then don't worry. The, the order is not really intentional. It's just these are these top 10 moments that I thought of and kind of tried to put them in order of release. So first up, my first episode, you know, laying out why I was doing it, what the intention was, why I like Babs Gordon, why I thought you should listen to it, and who can forget uh, the breathing issues. I remember that particular mic, not the same one that I use now, but I, I felt like the mic itself needed to be really close to my mouth, and, and I was just learning the ropes with all the, the tech and everything. And it's uh, it's funny because, you know, I think a long list of people at the beginning for helping me get started and I could not even I didn't even know uh, Josh's last name I mean who is that Joshua Lampin character so take a listen to this Salwete welcome all to Batgirl to Oracle the Barbara Gordon podcast episode one this podcast is sponsored by Afroaway Afroaway solving hair's big mysteries do you find yourself constantly inconvenienced by your afro Are you often told to take off your hat in a movie theater because the people cannot see behind you? Do you live in a place with 97% humidity and frequently walk outside only to absorb all the moisture in the air by means of your afro? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then Afro Away is the solution. Afro Away is clinically proven to decrease the size of your afro. Product not yet tested on poodles or Pomeranians. Do you want to be a sponsor for my show? Email me at batgirltooracle at gmail.com. I'm so excited right now, and this is a very momentous occasion for me and the podcast. And, as it is the first episode, I must start off with some podcasting business. There are a few thank yous that I need to give out to people. There are so many people that were instrumental in the creation and the evolution of this podcast, and it really is imperative that I give thanks to them. Gerard Delator II... Uh, he drew this wonderful splash, splash page excuse me, for me of Babs and all her different incarnations. I cannot thank him enough or quit staring at it. Kevin Cushing, uh, he helped me get a good name for the podcast that was simple yet potent. Bertoni, um, also known as Joshua Lamp. Pin Bertone, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, he was very helpful in getting me a list of Babs' uh, appearances and answering some initial technical issues. George Berryman, oh bear, he was extremely helpful when I was first setting up my blog and attempting to change some of the code as well as all the trouble that I was having with embedding things. Michael Bailey, practically my podcasting mentor, um, he answered numerous questions and gave me a lot of advice concerning podcasting. And of course, Brad Douglas, without him giving me the chance to be on his own Spider-Man Crawl Space podcast, I would not have even considered doing this. And of course, thank you to all those who have really been enthusiastic about this project and have faith in me, you know, where I'm quite scared to be uh, starting this. Hopefully I didn't miss anyone, but thank you to all those mentioned. So why Babs? Babs, which is Barbara Gordon, for you that are not in the know, uh, to me is a diamond in the rough. In a world where there are many lackluster female characters, female comic book characters, Babs feels real to me. She's strong and deserving of respect, but not without her failings. Right now, I can only add Jessica Drew and Sharon Carter to that list um, of female characters who are believable. 
I cannot say that Babs is the best Batgirl without people disagreeing with me, but she is my favorite Batgirl, and so I think I have a right to do this podcast. And what are my expectations for this podcast? I want this to be a podcast where I learn about the character right along with you listeners. I want people who are fans of Cassandra or Stephanie to also be fans of Babs. Will it be a raw podcast? Probably at the beginning. I'm warning, but I have a dedication to make it great and enjoyable for you and me. You listeners are really important to this work. Ask me questions, give me advice, whatever. We all need something to build upon. Right now it's just me, um, but I do have grand plans for guest stars. I already know who I want to have on and what we would discuss, so please be patient. For now, I'll be starting at the beginning of Babs History, tackling a few issues an episode. I will also juxtapose the past with the present, discussing the recent issues of Batgirl and how things have changed. I hope to get an episode out a month, but more could come out in the future. It just depends on time constraints, obviously. For my number two moment... It's my first interview that I had with, as I called him, certainly, and I, I still believe it, my first uh, celebrity interview, but my first interview with a writer of a book, and that was Brian Q. Miller in episode number 10. And this is, you know, I, I think the catalyst for, for getting all the other interviews with Chuck Dixon and Scott Beatty, with Dwayne Swarzynski, Chrissy Marks, uh, the Batgirls spoiled team members, Gail Simone, which was not me, but Josh Bertone, Brian Q. Miller again at San Diego Comic-Con, Brendan Fletcher, Cameron Stewart, and Babs Tarr, and, and hopefully I'll be getting more down the line. But it was such an honor to be able to talk to Brian Q. Miller and just uh, an awesome and, and easy person to talk to, and, and it was about such a great run of Batgirl starring Stephanie Brown. So it is my great pleasure to introduce the current writer on Batgirl and Smallville, how to get a plug for that, and my very first celebrity guest, Mr. Brian Q. Miller. Hello. Welcome. I would would debate the celebrity portion, but thanks for having me. Oh, well, I feel like anyone whose name is bigger than mine will basically be a celebrity. So I guess you've already um, sort of said that everything was already in place. Did you uh, play any part in, you know, Stephanie's succession as Batgirl? It was just sort of already, you know, you were told this is what you need to do. Um, Really, the only only pieces in place when I came in were um, Stephanie's Batgirl. Uh, they wanted Barbara in the book, um, and they wanted uh, Wendy in play. Um, okay. So that was really uh, those were kind of the the widgets to plug into my uh, my first pitch, and I put together my pitch. And there were some things in there that they liked, and there were some things in there that they didn't. Um, but apparently, they liked more than they didn't. So uh, <laughs> so I got to play in the sandbox. Um, <clears throat> I mean, the biggest change was I in my pitch, Stephanie was still in high school. So the biggest thing was they're like, no, 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 let's put her at first year of college. I'm like, oh, okay. So it 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 changed the flow of the year a little bit, but um, but but by and large, it didn't really change that much. But the 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 Barbara Stephanie, them kind of helping each other out of their respective funks, um, seemed to be what they responded to the most. So I think yeah, and I think it really works. I especially like how you've sort of given her this uh, dual life. You have the the bat life, and then you have the uh, the college life at the same time. So, so since Stephanie, I guess this is her first time in the uh, the cow of Batgirl, at least. Uh, was it important? You know, you've already touched upon this costume, but was it important for you to create this really specific identity for her to separate her from all the other Batgirls that have come along? You know, either in her costume or even in 
the way she attacks a situation because to me she's sort of a, a leaps first uh, then consider later kind of person where oh absolutely yeah other people you know Barbara would probably really think about it and then Cassandra's just you know all all fists basically so what's your view on that just creating this her very own specific identity for it well I mean it 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 helps uh, just in in uh, with with who with who Steph had been established to be ahead of time, just that she she already kind of had that devil may care, punch first, ask questions later attitude that usually wound up getting her in loads and loads and loads of trouble with tons of collateral damage. Um, so so that already kind of helped make her a stark contrast to Cassandra, um, who was a weapon um, and was awesome, but was very much not not a bright cheery. Um, kind of character um, who had a very tormented, screwed up past. Um, so, I mean, that in mind, it was trying to play up as much of that aspect of Stephanie as we could, that she's she's going to go out there and she's going to, you know, call it like it is and she's going to get into trouble. And kind of the, the addition for bringing her back as Batgirl was she can do all of those things, but she's got to grow up. And she has to realize that Maybe how she's been behaving in the past hasn't been the best way to approach her life. So that, that's kind of why I'm glad uh, we did the the addition that she was in college because it's a very natural, like I'm on my own now. What do I do? Kind of environment that first that first semester of college. So it's it's when you start asking questions about yourself. It's when you start realizing things about yourself and the people around you. So the two kind of went hand in hand. So, and, and attitude wise too, if you look at early Babs, uh, Batgirl stuff, she, they're not wholly dissimilar. She and she and Stephanie, Stephanie, I think was just way more reckless than Babs used to be, but, but, but it was striving for kind of rebooting the levity of, of the title and the heroine. So to not, to not mimic Babs, but to kind of evoke that, that sense of fun that came with Barbara as Batgirl. My number three moment is, in fact, the Chuck Dixon and Scott Beatty interview, which happened in episode 22, and it was all about my favorite, favorite storyline, probably in comics, but also, of course, for Batgirl the Oracle, Batgirl Year One. And it was just great, you know, it's it's not like it's a recent story, but it was great to sit down and talk to these creators, how they came up with the idea, just them working together in the story, and you could tell the love that they had for that particular character and the love for that story and just that that was such a privilege and I remember calling Scott's house because you know I had to had to do it that way they didn't have Skype calling his house and and his wife answered and I said hello is Mr. Betty there and she said oh it's Beatty and I'm like "Ooh!" so that was terrible but you know luckily that helped me out because that answered a question I had about how to properly pronounce his last name so won't ever happen again but lovely and then I also think back to the Batgirl year one petition where they were thinking about having a Batgirl year one direct-to-video film for the DC animated movies that for for Warner Brothers and then they they scratched it uh, mostly because 
Wonder Woman didn't get a lot of sales that they were expecting, though I believe Wonder Woman is probably one of the best movies that they have out there. And just starting that and, and getting Chuck Dixon and Scott Beatty to, they signed it, and then sending that off to Warner Brothers and getting a response, which was great. You know, I'm glad they didn't just throw away everything in the petition. Uh, and this petition, if you think about it, was the catalyst for bringing me on the Batman universe because Dustin had found out about it, and, and then he didn't, it wasn't really an interview, but he, he popped on and talked to me about it and I, I gave him the reason why I, I was doing it and everything like that and he promoted it and then you know later on you know he would take on my podcast and, and support it and, and host it on his site and then I would pop on so that was the beginning the beginning of many wonderful things. Bad Girl Year One is perhaps my favorite Bab story and I frankly think it to be the the best miniseries ever written and I often offer it as the best jumping on point for any new reader. But, you know, what would Batgirl Year One be without its writers? And it is my deepest pleasure to introduce to you the two gentlemen who brought us this lovely work. My heroes, my idols, Mr. Chuck Dixon and Mr. Scott Beatty. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Was that too much? Was that too much there? Yeah. So, welcome. Thank you. Let me open a window for my ego. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Need some space. Well, I guess we'll just go right into the the actual story. So, I wonder, you know, what gave you the idea for Batgirl Year One? How did this all come about? Um, I think, well, we had done, we did Robin Year One before. Right. Batgirl Year One. And um, the... I, I think Scott it was you initially came up with the idea that there should be rubbish out of year one, just as Batman did. And then the, the, the problem was was convincing DC because they held Batman year one in such high regard that no one could ever follow that act. And I thought this is silly in publishing. When you have a success, you follow up on it. Um, and I thought, you know, we, we, we thought together, and, and I'm sure Scott was the one who initially came up with it, you know, to, that Robin should have his own year one. He certainly deserves one. And eventually a whole bookshelf of year ones. Uh, why yeah, why yeah. should Frank Miller get the only shot at doing something like that? Yeah, you know, Chuck and I have always, you know, kind of approached this business, not just by story, like this would be a great, you know, story or addition to the canon. We also think of it from the marketing standpoint. Why not have a bookshelf? Because it's a business, and, you know, we certainly want to, you know, succeed in this business. So I think when we, you know, we, we kind of, uh, spitballed the idea back and forth for Robin Year One, and uh, DC, you know, bit at it and turned it into you know four prestige format uh, issues, which you know was you know kind of a big deal at the time because they, they didn't do that many prestige anymore. And, uh, and then you know, following you know, I guess the, the success of that, they said you know, let's try Batgirl. So now, actually, you know, I think we pitched Batgirl. Yeah, yeah, we had to keep yeah. telling them, you know, they. Yeah. It's weird in a lot of publishing. They get a success on their hands, and they they don't know what to do next. And you sort of have to go, well, let's do another one. <laughs> you know, because if Robin did well, I mean, certainly Batgirl would do just as well. Yeah, if I recall, you know, it's been a few years now. I think that when we had written Robin, and that there's that final page, I think page 19 or 20 in the last issue, where Dick is on the rooftop of GCPD headquarters. And uh, he meets Barbara Gordon from a oh, good life. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's a line we repeated in, in all three of the year ones we did, the trifecta, Robin, Batgirl, and Nightwing, where Gordon kind of sees the connection between the two characters and says, not in your life, boy, wonder. And I think we kind of set that up. And then, you know, that was the, the, the key that, you know, we thought, okay, here's Babs. 
let's let's go into back row year one. And, and uh, luckily, I guess that you know Marcos Martin came in and pitch hit for Javier Polito on uh, Robin uh, with deadlines, and you know he was the natural choice for artist, and you know he was just uh, yeah, we couldn't have picked a better artist. Well, I, well, I remember on, um, on when we we began Robin Year One, we didn't know who was going to draw it, and then we saw Javier's artwork, and we went back and rewrote uh, a large part of Robin Year One to match his artwork, and then Marcos had a lot of the same uh, storytelling sensibilities. So we were we just we were in the groove then. Uh, yeah, you know. yeah, and Marcos and Javier are friends, so when he came in to help, you know, I think the pages there are kind of seamless. Also, that uh, he really did Javier's style make it, uh, you know, so there weren't any, you know, it wasn't disjointed at all. Yeah, we concentrated on a more visual storytelling style because, the, you know, both those guys really are remarkable in the way they tell a story. Well, I guess the, the final two things I have to say definitely is that, you know, whenever anyone asks me what can I read to get into the Batgirl character, I, this is absolutely the first thing that I tell them. And then they write back and say how much they absolutely love it. So I think that definitely points to the greatness uh, that you put into it and, and how wonderful you two are. And, um, oh, yeah. And just thank you though. Honestly, it's one of, it is my favorite story. I don't even know why I say one of, it is my favorite story and, and I love it so much. And of course, thank you for coming on. Sure. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And uh, yeah. I can say that uh, it, it is a writing experience. It was probably one of the most effortless collaborations that, that I've ever been involved in. I mean, you know, Chuck and I just, I, you know, we just had such a blast writing it. It was, you know, more fun than we should have been allowed to have and get paid for it. <laughs> don't ever let them know that. Yeah, exactly. Actually, I think they know that. That's why they don't pay us that much. <laughs> well, thanks again so much. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Stella. Well, have right. a wonderful night. You too. Okay, you too. Bye. Bye. My number four moment was the Joker's Gas April Fool's episode, which was episode 37. Ten minutes of insanity. And if you don't know the history of this, which I don't know if anyone does except if you're on the Batman Universe podcast. This was all taken from a Batman Universe comic podcast that I was on, and I was so sick. I was uh, not sick in the mind, but... It was just a serious cold, and you can tell by my voice how sick I was. And I had not taken anything, I promise you. I think it was just me being fatigued and and sick and everything, and this just goes on for so long. And listening back to it now, while it is hilarious still, I do feel bad for my co-host because it was late, because we we do it... uh, later you know to accommodate everyone and uh for poor joe i mean he's five hours ahead of us so that was even later for him and they just wanted to get it done and and i could not go through anything without laughing but it it still was a memorable moment for me on january 25th kyle higgins talked to newsrama about psycho and the Night of Owls crossover event. And uh, for this interview, I will read for Newsarama. And Stella will read for Kyle Higgins. Ooh, that's exciting. Please don't doctor his voice. I won't. <laughs> I know he's your BFF. He's not my BFF, but I just don't want you to doctor <laughs> his voice because it's going to come across really, really bad with you being sick. <laughs> okay. How do you know? It's already doctored as it is with your sick voice. I know, that's why I said I wouldn't have to do anything. Okay. I'm ready whenever you are. Okay. 
I'm going to skip the first question because it's not really relevant. When will we find out more about Raymond and his motivations to be psycho and attack Dick? Issue number six and number seven, which are the culmination and wrap-up of the first arc. The circus comes back to Gotham City for a memorial show, which ties into what Raymond and Raya have been planning for some time. <laughs> we'll learn quite a bit more about Raymond and his motivations, and what exactly he means when he says Dick Grayson is the fiercest killer in Gotham. And Dick Grayson is learning that... <laughs> Sorry, I thought I heard someone laughing. <sighs> And Dick Grayson is learning that he may not know himself in his past the way, the, thought, the way he thought he did. And there's kind of a parallel story there about not letting your past define you, not letting outside facets define you. So this current arc sets up Dick's role in Night of the Owls in that way. Also, Nightwing saving the mayor during the event is... <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Silly moose. He's got a case of the giggles. <laughs> oh, okay. You never laughed before. <laughs> uh, also, hey, I think I sound a little better. Also, maybe not. Also, Nightwing saving the mayor during the event is something that's going to be setting up. <laughs> Nobody's messaging. <laughs> I know. Anything. I'm not looking at it. I'm sorry. Also. For <laughs> sake, Stella. Oh, wow. Stella, what happened? We weren't going to be here all night. I'm sorry. Okay. It's one more sentence. You can do it. Two more sentences, Stella. Two more. Two more. <laughs> How about breathe, breathe? You can do this. <laughs> Yo, did you forget to send out that uh, that uh, resonation request? Oh gosh, I'm sorry. <sighs> also, Nightwing saving the mayor during the event is something that's going to be setting up the future direction of the series as well. The Night of Owls crossover is a big turning point for Nightwing. Hello? <laughs> Dustin? I just want to make sure that, you know... <laughs> I'm listening! <laughs> you know, somebody's pumping the laugh gas. Mute your freaking mic. <laughs> Quinn. Number five is or are the shipper spotlight specials that I do with Donovan. And I think especially to episode 34, which was an actual DC one. It was Hawk Girl and Green Lantern. Wild Cards is above and beyond my favorite uh, Justice League or Justice League animated. You wait, Justice League Unlimited episode ever. Um, it's I Justice League. It's season two of Justice League. Anything, yeah. Any sort of Justice League episode. Um, I can watch it whenever, as many times as I want. It was such great storytelling. And these two, this is, I guess, the beginning of of the actual concrete relationship and I do love that Joker commentary um, you know is she going to 
continue to sublimate her her feelings with that big honking maze. I mean, that's exactly her, though. That's exactly what she does. And I just remember after he shoots her out um, from the, the casino, you know, she yells, John. And that is totally where part one ends. With no music. Like, I know. John! And that's it. You see the fire uh-huh. in her eyes, and then it ends. And then it starts off, and she gets him, and, and she's kind of crying. Well, I don't know if she's crying, but she does say softly, you know, um, I never got to tell him. And then he's like, tell me what? Oh, yeah. And uh, and then the first non-DC episode, which was episode 54, and that was Robotech. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need that. <laughs> oh, dear. Are you nervous? No, I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> this, I'm nervous for what could happen. What could happen? Min-May could kill us all. <laughs> Did you just down like a drink? Yes! No, I just needed something to quench my thirst. So she walks towards to Rick's apartment and um, wanting to apologize and really give it one last go because she's tried so much in the last ten episodes with this guy. And she hears Min-May through his door pouring her heart out at Rick. <laughs> and it's, it's literally one of my favorite scenes in the series where Lisa is like... they're Both Lisa and Min-May are in tears for, for, for different reasons. And Lisa is like, like leaning against the wall like like barely able to breathe and she just starts running away and it cuts to a scene of claudia like at a bar toasting to roy who has passed on that point and she sees lisa singing a minmay song drunk like oh boy drowning her drowning her sorrows like stage right go <laughs> so bad <laughs> My number two, and this is another one that kind of went across the gamut in terms of where it ranked, but I watched it again last night, and I was like, man, this is this is really good. And <laughs> I'm going to try to turn my, my uh, headphones down because I think Stella might scream, but it is episode four, The Long Wait, uh, original title, Lin Min May. Oh, Rick, why doesn't someone come and find us? I've got to get home! Oh, is- oh. <laughs> oh! I can't believe you took this one. Oh. Stupid uh, fish. <laughs> That's a big tuna fish. By the rest of the civilians, and um, they're saved. And um, it's interesting because from that point on, Min May acts completely oblivious to all of that romantic tension. Exactly. She says goodbye, Rick. Thanks for the lulls. <laughs> Well, um, I gotta hear this. my number one, would you, would you believe wedding bells? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm, I'm driving over the road. Miria, it's love, and that's the most beautiful thing there is. Why did I pick this, people? Maybe I, because it's the most ridiculous episode <laughs> I have ever seen in my life. You yeah. deceived me. Oh man, you know, first Max, yeah, getting his fighter pilot skill or oh yeah, God. fighter pilot skills from playing arcade games. So he happens in the previous episode, he happens to be playing Miria, and you know, in her head, she hears, "Oh, he's a good pilot." Of like arcade games would tell you that, but he ends up beating her, and she freaks out and is really upset. And he says, "Please meet me in the park," and he tells her to meet her in the morning. So let's ignore the fact that this. episode 
episode, he says, I shouldn't have asked a female to come to the park at 9 p.m. at night. So, <laughs> so anyways, she ends up coming, but probably not the way that uh, he first envisioned as she pulls a <laughs> knife on him and goes to, to attack him because she, she just not like being um, thwarted or embarrassed by uh, a puny human. Uh, so there's a duel at one point between two knives, and then he ends up disarming her, and she's like, okay, you know, go for the kill. I'm done being embarrassed. And... The <laughs> <laughs> I can't even get through this without having... <laughs> they end up being in an embrace, and they somehow float. <laughs> Just loads of fun doing it, you know, not only doing it with, with Donovan, I, I couldn't see doing it with anyone else, but, you know, just the fact that I get to indulge in my, my shipperness and, and get to go through, you know, the most romantic episodes or, or issues or whatever we decide to do. And and uh, these were especially fun and, and memorable, and, and hopefully they continue to go on. Number six is the Wheel of Bad Girls, which was episode 32. It was one of my anniversary shows. And this was a trivia round where we were asking each other trivia questions on Stephanie Brown, Cassandra Kane, and Barbara Gordon. Of course, there was a part two later on. But it was just loads of fun to, to research what I was or what we were going to be asking questions on and then have this, this fun little game. Now it is my turn to answer a question. Oh, okay. Then it is my turn to ask a question, isn't it? Yes. Hmm. Okay. Um, I did not put these into easy, medium, and hard, so for the okay. sake of for the sake of fairness, I'm just going to pretend that they're all hard because it's like, oh we, my gosh. well, no, like, well, no, no, because like, who judges? If, who judge? To me, if it's an easy question, like the audience might think it's a hard question, so it's oh. like, oh, she should have got him one point. She should have got him three points instead of one, etc. So. Okay, this is um, this is actually a shipping-related question. Oh, here we go. How about that? Yeah. So, for all you Babs and Brew shippers out there, um, <laughs> all three of you, the DC animated universe, I'm looking at you. Yeah, yeah, you know who you are. All you, all you sickos out there. Which one of these timelines that I'm about to mention did not involve a Babs and Bruce romantic attraction? Now, I say romantic attraction, meaning one of them was attracted to another, or etc. They didn't have to date. They just had to have the hots for each other. So, in which one of these realities did they not have any sort of relationship that wasn't platonic? Or it, it, Let me clear it up. You're picking the one where they didn't have feelings for each yeah, other. So okay. So, no shipping between the two. In, uh, in the Adam West continuity. In the DC Animated Universe continuity. In the zero hour continuity or an Earth Two continuity? Um, I'm going to go. Well, this is this is kind of a tough one. I'm going to go with uh, zero hour. Zero <laughs> hour, zero hour Batgirl. Oh, she and Batman did have something. No! <laughs> as far as I know, there was no Batgirl in Earth Two continuity, okay. so she couldn't have had the hops for. Batman. I was thinking about uh, thrill. D is thrill killer just in Elseworlds? Is that we, yeah. that we just consider it, that a, some other? Okay. It, it is a con. I mean, you, you you would consider that a continuity, just not in continuity. But yeah, Earth Two. I gotcha. Okay. Uh, yeah, there's um. Batgirl is telling the our reality is Batman. She's like, oh, pretty soon you'll remember how things are, and then she like whispers oh. in his ear seductively. 
and how yeah. things are with us. And Batman looks at her like, the heck? Whoa. And then she runs away crying, Betty Brand style. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Betty Brand. Poor, poor Babs. Okay, so I have zero points. Starting off great. Uh, Don, would you like easy, medium, or hard? I did organize them. Or very hard. There is a very hard. Also, also I have a choice, so. Yeah. <laughs> you, you should start off with very hard. So we can do that Lady Shiva scenario we talked about during our pre-recording. <laughs> I don't want to die. <laughs> um, points for the very hard. I'll, I'll ask for a medium question. A medium. Okay. When Cassandra moves to Bloodhaven, or Bloodhaven, she follows <laughs> in Batman's footsteps by doing what? A. Brooding. B. Distancing herself from her loved ones. C. Making her own gadgets. Or D. Keeping a journal. That is a very good question. Hmm. It's either it's either brooding, uh, making her own gadgets, keeping a journal, or distancing herself from her loved ones. Yes. Um, which I think I got the order wrong, but um. Hmm. That that is a good question. I will say distancing herself from her loved ones. It's actually keeping a journal. I, uh, oh. She's, I thought she did yeah. that because of Doug Funny. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> yeah, she does start. Dear Journal, <laughs> I had a great day out with Dad today. With Patty, Patty Manny's. Mm. Which uh, I mean, I, I know which is just that word, but uh, oh boy, Journal. Okay. Yeah, I'm not a good. I'm not good with uh, the issue numbers, which is why those are all in the hard category. But yeah, when she go after you know her. Um, her rendezvous with Tim, and she stays there for a little bit. She does end up writing, writing in a in a journal, which is very interesting for someone who didn't used to vocalize her thoughts really well. So Josh is the only one with a point. So we're, we're, I'm going to fix that right now because okay. he's making us look bad. <laughs> so yeah. round one, we we have Josh with one point, and uh, myself and Donovan have zero. I'm just, I'm just going to close my eyes and poke, pick at one with my finger. Uh, what color was Stephanie Brown's blonde hair? <laughs> sure it is. Okay, I'll, I'll say this one. Stephanie and Robin flirted for a while before getting together. What was the circumstances of their first kiss? Was it A, Spoiler got the drop on Robin and kissed him during patrol? B, Robin kissed Spoiler after escaping an armored truck buried under cement with the Clue Master? C, Tim and Stephanie shared a kiss after Robin vented her frustrations with his girlfriend Ariana? Or D, Stephanie kissed Robin in a fit of emotion after seeing her father hauled off to jail. Gotta love the ship. Okay, D sounds like something that could have happened, but I specifically remember B, which is the armored truck one. But I'm not sure if there was a D before the B. But I, I mean, I specifically remember like they were. It was Tim and Clue Master. They were running out of oxygen, and like he digs himself out, sees Stephanie, and immediately like kisses her. So, because I actually remember that happening, I'm going to go with B. Dang it, you're right. <laughs> it was it, that was that was their very first kiss. I mean, they kissed uh, before they actually got together. A couple, well, they, she kissed him. But I remember was, final nights. They're like they're making out on the cover. Ooh. Indeed. Is that a two point question? Would you say? Yeah, I, I, I would say so. Because it's it's not all that well known. So. Okay. If I could only get that kiss. <laughs> Do you think we should just make it easier and say that everything's worth one point? Uh, it's up to you. It's up to you. 
It simplifies things. Yeah, because I think I'm the only one. I mean, I'll still give you the option of easy, medium, or hard. Maybe it'll be just easier to one point, one point stuff. Okay. So Josh is at two now, and yeah. you and I are, are about to be at one. <laughs> I certainly hope so. Okay, bring it on. <laughs> and who can forget all the wacky places that Josh has recorded? You can even hear in the background dishes tinking and and all sorts of things and i believe that was also the anniversary where he was outside and a man comes up to him to <laughs> ask him for money so yeah i i think it's a little bit better now he actually records indoors in 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 apartment but uh i just remember all the crazy places and you know attached to this number six i would just say that anytime josh and don come on loads of fun always for the anniversary episodes and and this particular highlight was from a commentary we did because we always do reviews and then a commentary for these anniversary episodes and this one was a moment taken from the batman and robin commentary what is the nightwing logo doing to the bat logo (laughs) why why are they on top of each other (laughs) this is not slash fake oh here we go well it is this is not slash fake as we get the close-ups of them getting dressed that's weird though yeah there's the butt shot the crotch shot not slash (laughs) fake you need to calm down i am eye to eye with chris o'donnell and george Clooney's crotches why can't we just go down the bat pole like they did in the 60s show yeah, you don't want to know what Schumacher would do with, like, a bat. It would be, like, an exquisite neon bat pull. My number seven moment was the Batgirl Roundtable, which was episode 49. And this was coming around the time that I was just dissatisfied with the Gail Simone Batgirl run. And for some reason, I seem to be the only one because all these people are giving such positive comments. And I wanted to know why. I just wanted to know, you know, not in an intense confrontational way. But I want to know what is it that you like about it. So I was bringing on different people. I brought on Ed, uh, Sean Waywin, Jill Pantazzi was on for the first episode, Christina Collins, Don came on for the second one, and we just chatted about the different directions that Gail Simone was going, and, and you know, who is this Batgirl character, and what is it about her that, that you are enjoying, and the villains, and things like that. First from Ed, you said uh, about the PTSD, you know, when she first saw that gun, she sort of froze. Do you find it inconsistent that later on when she, you know, sees guns, all of a sudden she's fine? Like she got over that rather quickly. It was just that one gun and then she got it out of her system and now she's back to normal. And my second one from Christina just talking about, you know, uh, being shown as like this badass chick. Do you, what do you think about the times when she's beaten up? pretty easily like batwoman was the most recent one that comes to mind uh she makes sort of these errors in judgment like turning her back and then she's stabbed from behind but then all of a sudden uh her first time in the cow in batgirl number zero she's able to take out that really huge guy and then she was able to to beat down nightfall when she's injured with a knife wound so do you find these inconsistencies or how do you view those I think it's the continuation of seeing her grow grow back into the character of Batgirl. I think by the time we get to Nightfall, which, you know, I don't sure about how the timeline works exactly, but, you know, we're probably several months at least down the line. I think she's grown back into being Batgirl a little bit. I, I think that I would have liked a little more exposition about her getting over the gun and maybe a little more self-reflection about it. There was some in the book. Uh, 
I think it was a little rushed, but I think a lot of time in indie comics with, with limited page counts and limited amount of issues, things have to be rushed on a little bit. I like, like a little more thought about it, but I don't find it inconsistent as much to maybe a little rushed, but I think it's just the evolution of her growing back into the role as Batgirl. Yeah, I would, I would agree with Ed. You know, my thing with, I think with a whole two, I think it was a two issue with Batwoman, you know, you see both of them fight each other and I was kind of like rooting for um, Batgirl to really beat Batwoman's, Batwoman's ass. Um, the whole thing with, you know, like Ed said, it's, it is rushed, but, you know, it, it's growth for her. And just seeing her turn herself from this good little chick, like she's, I think for Batgirl, she's understanding that not everything is so, you got to do justice, you got to do right, you got to do it by the book. She's more like saying, I have to do it based on judgment. And for me, Batgirl's always been the person who's like, by the book, just like her father, you got to do it by the book, this and that. But there's points where there are great, great areas. So um, the whole thing kind of with Batwoman is Batwoman is not by the book. She's kind of like by instinct. And she's a Byronic character in which she's uh, a hero, but she does things differently. And I think Barbara, um, Barbara's Batgirl saw that. And she's now towing that line, just like how Batwoman is. And Batwoman is her own hero. She's away from the family. And Batgirl kind of did that too. She's like, I want no help. Not from Batman, not from Nightwing. None of you. I'm on my own. Let me do this. And she's finding herself as a vigilante, you know, and she's relying on, you know, you know, she's weighing the balance beam of what's, you know, justice and what's right. And for her, that's a huge step in my, uh, in my, um, in my opinion. And, you know, the whole thing with her getting stabbed by nightfall, that was just a huge error because she was blinded by fury and blinded by, you know, what's, you know, what's right and what was in front of her, you know, and, it kind of shows that, you know, she wasn't thinking, you know, for the first time, like for most of the issues, she's, she's not really thinking. She's more of like going based on instincts and she's now realizing she has to start cal- be calculated, but also go by instinct. So huge growth for the character, I believe. Um, yeah. Okay. Are we better thinking that Babs was never Oracle or should we believe that she was Oracle at one time? Do either really impact our view of the current character? Um. Well, I I would say, let's well let's put it this way. Before I knew exactly what they were going to do with Batgirl, I was of the mind that it, it would have been better if she was never Oracle. But now that we have found out that she, you know, did have the injury, I I. I, I want her to have been Oracle, but I just don't think that it makes sense in this particular timeline and story, because I don't think that after doing what she did as Oracle, or at least what she did in the past as Oracle that we know, I don't think that she could have stepped back into this life as she has in this book. I think if she was Oracle, she would be mixing what she did as Oracle with what she did as Batgirl. And I don't think we've seen any of that. I think it's just been straight back to bad girl business. So in 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 this case, I guess I'm I guess I'm saying that I, I guess she shouldn't have been Oracle at all in this timeline. Just because it doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think I think there's pretty good I, I was kinda on the fence about this until thirteen. And I think there's pretty good evidence that she isn't Oracle when there's that whole speech at the end from Nightfall where she says, you know, I can't remember the exact words, but 
I, I've got servers and databases, and I, I can control the information. And Batgirl response is, well, then I'll learn to beat those two. Not if she had been Oracle, I don't think her response would have been, "I'll learn to beat those two." If that make you know what I'm saying? Yeah. If someone was threatening Oracle with, "I'm going to use a server against you," she'd be like, "Yeah, come on, get real, get out of here," you know. So <laughs> I think right. that directly speaks to the fact that she's she's not Oracle, you know, or hasn't been in this in this continuity. Yeah. You know, her, if she was Oracle, that would mean there's a huge history behind her with Black Canary and with other you know members of the Birds, and that's something that they really didn't want to do. They just want to start fresh and new, but um. I kind of, I'll be the one <laughs> who will say it. I kind of want her to be Oracle because it's like I want to see that transition where, you know, uh, and I think for most of us wanted to see that that transition where it's like I'm learning how to walk. I'm learning how to do this. I'm learning how to do that. And as Oracle, she was one, she used most of her mind. And for girls, that's like their biggest tool to use sometimes in the world. And two, you know, the whole ethics thing where it's like you have a character who has a disability you know, which was really great for, you know, people who were in wheelchairs and, you know, um, also diversity. So I really, you know, I kind of wanted to see that, like, she had a time where she was Oracle because it was a time for her to grow mentally instead of physically as a character. But, um, you know, it would have been too much for uh, DC to pull, but it would have been nice. (laughs) My number eight moment is the Killing Joke special, which was episode 82. I tackle this much-talked-about story, one that I don't really like, but we, Donovan and I, just just go at it and pull it apart and, and discuss all sorts of aspects about it, and I think it's we do a very thorough job with it. And, and of course, everything is left up to interpretation with, with many parts of it, but I think, you know, we put forth good theories, and uh, it was just good to to chat about this particular story, which was, it's a difficult story and controversial, I would say, and so to have someone with you to to talk about it and either share or have, you know, some conflict of ideas, I think it was well worth it, and, and I think it made for a good listening experience. But he has a reason to his madness. There is no reason to Joker, so why would you even attempt to, to reason with him and this just seems like faulty faulty characterization I'm just not with you on that to, it's uh, really that impossible to think <laughs> that he would yeah it's weird for me to think that he would find a phone book and look for Gordon I could see him I guess kidnapping somebody and like hey leave me to work I don't know I'm just trying to find holes in the pot. <laughs> you're, just, you're just patting before we get to the meat of it. He looks in the puddle and, and he sees himself and it just something cracks. But I, I don't know if I, I feel like there had to have been something before. And again, like, I just think like it's oh. a weird. I, I, I honestly do. I think that, you know, there should have been some history. If if we're to believe that the Joker we're, we're learning about as Joe whoever is the same Joker that's doing all this bad stuff to all these characters we love i think there's got to be a history back then it's not like it's like three different people gordon tells batman to bring in the joker by the book and and i think that really shows his admirable qualities um and just what what sort of a stand-up guy that he is but do you think in terms of what has happened do you think this is believable no (laughs) do it now batman's character i'm gonna start off easy do you think it's possible to mess up Batman's cowl like that? <laughs> <laughs> With that, should I break up my rant and you you talk about that part? 
you do with feels. Well, I, okay, okay. Honestly, because I have nothing to say about it. Like, oh, you don't I, have anything because he's a I Batman never... lover. No matter what kind of crap he does. What are you talking like? I'm not here. I feel like the Batman I know and love is the Batman that loses control and death in the family, loses control and hush, and especially now when this stuff has happened to Babs and Jim, two people that he loves, and Jim saying, you know, do it by the books. I could see like Batman just grunting and going off, and then pound, 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 maybe not killing the Joker, but this just, it gets me upset, just like, man, do you love the Joker, and do you want to rehabilitate him more than you love Babs and and, and Jim and what has just happened, so that's that's another problem that I have, and that's, I guess, my my second problem, but just, my gosh, where's where's the love for your own family? I agree with you. Oh, you really? <laughs> I was re- I was like I was girding my wounds right then. You could have heard a click of a belt. So really? Yeah, I okay. do. Okay. Do you have anything? To- I'm so happy. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think the joke means? How does it relate to the story? I think those go together. And why is Batman laughing? The joke is literally about Batman and the Joker, and Batman's laughing because he kills the Joker at the end. I I feel like you're joking. No, I'm not. Have you not heard this? Wait, you're being serious. But okay, but he, he doesn't kill the Joker. Oh, but, okay, because well, I'm like looking thing. at this. Here's, here's, like, here's the thing. Sort of connected to number eight is my number nine moment, which was John Ostrander episode eighty three popping up there. Now this the the situation with this was that I had a call in special with the Killing Joke where. You know, it's not just Donovan and I that have opinions on this story. Who else out there has it? And so we have a call-in special to talk to other people about what they think of the story. What do they think about what happened to Babs in it? What do they think about the ending? What does it mean? What does it mean to have a very bad day and, and you know, Joker's multiple-choice history and all of this stuff? And John Ostrander popped on, and he talked about his history, what he thought about it, how this was really the catalyst of coming up with the Oracle and... Uh, her introduction to Suicide Squad and just his work with his wife, Kim Yale. And just what an honor to have this guy, this great, come on and say, yeah, I will, I'll be a part of this. I'll pop on and, and give you a call. And, and wow, what, what wonders. And uh, hopefully similar wonders and gems will continue to pop up through the next 100 episodes of Backroll the Oracle. VTO listener, this is a very special moment about to have John Ostrander here and he is he's a prolific writer but he also he has done Batgirl as Oracle he was probably the first person to do it in Suicide Squad so here we go <sighs> are you excited I'm, I, I'm thrilled does he know does he know you're calling him yes hello hello is that you Stella oh you bet it is sir oh at last I'm sorry I it's been so long since I've actually used Skype that they decided that I had an outmoded version and wouldn't let me onto it. Hey, that is okay. Skype is annoying for you if you use it once or if you use it every day. So yeah. I totally understand. This is quite an honor. My co-host and I, Donovan, we're just super happy and, and really almost awestruck to have you on because we really respect your work and, and what you did with Oracle. So thank you so much for coming on. Oh, yeah, that's not it, that's not a problem. And I'll see what I can do to lower your respect so you feel more comfortable. <laughs> I don't know if it's possible. Opens it up without even bothering to look and check to see. This is Barbara Gordon. This was yeah. Batgirl. Mm-hmm. And she's just going to open the door? This is Gotham. 
you know, and doesn't occur to to her to like check who might be on the other side of that door. That just didn't make sense to us. Also, we felt that given how she was shot, she should be dead. Mm, uh, really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Basically, shot out her spine, and uh, the shock from that alone could kill you. Uh, septus could easily set set in. Um, the odds of actually surviving that are poor. And then when we see her later in the hospital, she's been beaten. Mm-hmm. You know, she's showing facial bruises. Uh, and there's and there's even, to my mind, suggestion of rape. So, um, no, we weren't particularly keen on that. Yeah. And then, and then, Batman and the Joker towards the end have a laugh together. Yeah. 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 Do you have any thoughts on? We've been asking people who have come in on like. What is what is that about? Do you have any thoughts on why he laughed? You had an issue about that, that that had Barbara actually directly addressed to Batman. Did I hear that you and Joker laughed? Wasn't it in like Batman Chronicles or something? That's when we did Oracle Year One with Brian Stelfreeze. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was actually the last work that my late wife Kim Yale and I did together. Initially, Helena and Bertinelli, but they had the Cassandra Cain Batgirl, then later on the Stephanie Brown Batgirl. Did you have any thoughts toward like the different versions of Batgirl that stemmed along? Do you think that like that was a role only meant for Barbara, or were you happy with her just being Oracle? Well, I was, of course, very happy with her being Oracle. Uh, again, because we wanted to make sure that there was, in fact, a, uh, a result, you know, a consequence to what happened in the killing joke. Uh, also, there was no one like her out there. You know, uh, uh, a hero who was, you know, truly handicapped, and we heard from many, many people in the handicapped community how much Oracle meant to them. Mm-hmm. Um, when we did the Oracle Year One, Kim was very clear, and we spent a whole page just showing how difficult it was for Barbara to get from her um, wheelchair just into the back seat of a car. You know, we wanted to show you know that there were things to overcome. And that she did it, and that she was as much or, or, or even more of a hero than she had ever been before. Well, thanks again for taking time out of your day to, to talk with us. Thank you so Good. much. Quite all right. You know, uh, and, uh, and you have a good day, and uh, enjoy talking with you. Yes, thank you. You too. Take okay. care, sir. Right, bye. bye-bye. My goodness! I think that may have just happened. Pinch me in my drink. No, that was awesome. Uh, I'm giving you like high fives across. <laughs> and finally, my number ten moment is this right here, right now. What you are listening to, the fact that I started off with twenty minute episodes and just thinking about getting in, getting out, you know, doing my business in there, reviewing my comics and coming out. And then I start to have interviews and I start to have guests and special co-hosts. And then my listeners go from, you know, 100 or so in the first couple months to 300. And now, you know, we're, we're up into the thousands and people know about the show for, you know, I, I went to San Diego Comic-Con and Cameron Stewart, Brendan Fletcher, they knew about Backroll Oracle. So things like that. It's It's just been an amazing ride. And I hope that these 100 episodes are not the last 100 that you will have. 
really, you know, thanks all to you because you are the people that are downloading this particular podcast. And I just hope as a as a podcaster that I continue to bring entertainment. I continue to give the time that each issue is worth and and really break them down and and give good thoughts on them and not just be dismissive or anything and hopefully bring some you know some positivity of course you guys should know by now that that I don't just say negative things out of hand that there is a reason and that I try to be a good reviewer and and I hope that this continues so number 10 almost is my number one moment right if we were on the late show with David Letterman where he does his his top 10 moments of you know reasons why such and such this would be my number one the fact that I made it to 100 episodes so I just want to give a list of people that I I would love to thank you know over the years that have helped me out and please forgive me if I'm forgetting anyone because I really had uh, I had thought about this list for a while so first of all all the creators that have granted me an interview or you know a soundbite that you saw at the beginning Apple Michael Bailey George Berryman Josh Bertoni, Brad Douglas, Dustin Frischel, Donovan Morgan Grant, guests like Tom Penneries, Kevin Cushing, Christina Collins, Sean Whalen, Jill Pentazzi, Ed and Shag, people who have called into the show on both occasions, my first anniversary and the Killing Joke special, Chris Carnes, Steve J. Rogers, Noctis, Zias, and most especially to you all for downloading and listening every month. You have no idea how much I appreciate all of you. Thank you. Now over to Kimberly Rockmore for a special promotion of Bubba Moose's sophomore album, Moose on the Loose. Thank you, Stella. It is amazing and lovely to be back here after several episodes of being away, but of course you know that I've been rather busy. But it's just a pleasure and a privilege to be on Back to Oracle episode 100. And congrats to you, Sarah, for making it through 100 episodes. And here's to the next 100. Well, as Stella said, I'm here to promote Bubba Moose's sophomore album, Moose on the Loose. Now, it's been four years since her debut album, but Bubba Moose has come back with a worthwhile sophomore attempt called Moose on the Loose. Instead of mere rap and club mixes, she's experimented with new technology and music. Some of the new songs you will hear on the album are Eye Patch, the distorted version. Domino Dare Doll. There he swings. There he swings. There he swings again. My love, the monkey boy. And while he may be hairy with a tail. It's hot, so drop it. When the Joker comes a knocking, drop him like it's hot, drop him like it's hot, drop him like it's hot. When Corey comes a flirting, punch her like it's hot, punch her like it's hot, punch her like it's hot. And if Batman gets an attitude, pop him like it's hot, pop him like it's hot, pop him like it's hot. I got the domino mask and I'm coming for you. I'm the best fat girl and you can say the times too.
plus a bonus live track not heard anywhere else, and a duet with an up-and-coming artist. Moose on the Loose drops May 29th. Now back to you, Stella. Thank you, Kimberly. So wonderful to hear your voice again and know that you are still alive out there somewhere. And hopefully you can come back to Batgirl to Oracle part-time in the future. Well, that is it. As always, you can send any questions or comments to BatgirlToOracle at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook or follow it on Twitter at BatgirlToOracle. Like the Batman Universe on Facebook as well. Once again, and always, thank you to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Batgirl the Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. From a little-known show to now, happy 100. And until the next 100, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon, masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you? Dursima? Dur. <laughs> Pensor Jan Dursima. Well, where do you expect Babs to go? Well, I mean, where where do you think Babs would want to go for her wedding, if this is true? Uh, the piers of New Jersey. <laughs> Why can't it be more exotic, Richard? Because, how sh- I, no offense to Babs, but I don't see her wheeling around on a beach. Oh my gosh, you're so insensitive. No I'm not they- trying to be, I'm just being realistic. <laughs> say this this is this entire time i've been doing this accent this is not the accent that i practiced at all oh i love listening to how it changes (laughs) i had a completely different accent that i was practicing and i cannot do it i've been trying to like slowly switch to the other one it's not working oh Almost done with this issue. <laughs> I can't believe you came up with that. Oh my gosh, New Jersey. I was trying to think of somewhere that had a hard surface. <laughs> oh my gosh, crying over here. Okay, who? Oh man, alive. Um. <clears throat> okay. Do you need a little break? Are you okay? I'm good. Okay. <laughs> Luckily, it's the last one, which is the worst one. This was awful. I'm just glad we're not doing a Suicide Squad issue like the last time I was on because, man. <laughs> that was the Janice Directive, remember that? Yes. Oh, yeah. I, I remember it very, very vividly. <laughs> oh, man. You make it sound like it was a terrible time. No, it wasn't a terrible time. It's just I, I, I don't really like that storyline that much. Oh, okay. And it's not – and to, like, jump in, into it, it's, it's – Yeah. Ooh. Oh, I agree. Yeah, it's tough. Well, did you like Batgirl? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was fine. Or, wait, are we talking about the Convergence, Convergence one? Convergence, yeah. No, not as much. Okay. That's there was a, I had a bunch of problems with it. Yeah, me too. 
Oh, okay. Well, it's next. actually quite funny because Uh-oh. I didn't do this on purpose, but it seems like your character, you are with my character. We, you keep agreeing with me. <laughs> I really and I'm not am. doing it on purpose. <laughs> but I was thinking about this. I was like, oh, this really is like so not me because she's literally agreeing with everything. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because, yeah, you and I disagree on the comic cast. I thought that was funny, too. Okay. Uh, Okay. Time for the accent change. Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) The accent, is it coming to you? I think so. Okay. I swear, like, originally it was like like Scottish-Irish-Gaelic mix. Oh, my. Because, like, it kept, like, switching between Scottish and Irish, and then it just comes across as Gaelic. But uh, that's what it was supposed to be. Yeah. And I was, like... Ten minutes before I got to the computer, I was sitting there like – and the problem is I do a lot better. I, it's probably because when I was practicing, I'm reading stuff, like trying to get it down. Like I'm reading something and reading it in the accent. But like naturally just saying stuff, it's very difficult. Mm-hmm. <sighs> anyway. You know, we, we can't get anybody who actually wrote these characters before, so let's find somebody who can just write the story. Mm-hmm. They found this this Kit Whitney, Kit Whitney, whoa, whoa, uh, whatever. <laughs> they, they, found, they found this person and they said, I don't even, I'm not familiar with if she's ever even done anything else at D.C., but it feels as if they, they might have walked outside their offices in New York and said, hey, who wants a job? And they said, okay, we give you, we give you these pieces of uh, reference material. And they gave her, the, they gave her the, probably the worst pieces of reference material they could have given her to, to, to have her understand who these characters were. And no, no offense to w- Wiki or... <laughs> You know, wicked or wicked. You know, I don't know. I don't. I don't know. No offense to her because I don't know the situation, but it just doesn't feel as if this. You know, this this waka waka. You know, no say. <laughs> oh my gosh! How long are you gonna go on with this? <laughs> I just I kept like my entire time in my head spinning. Like, what else can I come up with that starts with a W? With a W. <sighs> Okay. I'm still using Waka Waka. Hold on a second. I just read something on my car. Oh, okay. So it turns out uh, Kitney, (laughs) she's not a writer by trade. She's actually an editor. Okay. (laughs) Uh, She's a vertigo editor, and she occasionally writes. Okay. Do you want to go back? No. Okay. No, I'll just leave it. Okay. Who cares? Yeah. Nobody's coming after <clears throat> Stoneless. <sighs> no. All right, anyway. We don't understand. What the heck is going on? It sounds like there's a World War Three happening upstairs between my daughter scream. and my son. Oh, okay. Uh, anyway. Um, mm-hmm. Killer Moth. What does Killer Moth appear in Metropolis for? Are you sure we're in Metropolis? I swear I read. In Don's review, he said they were in Metropolis. Let me see. Of course, I don't actually see anything that says the town like normal comics. <sighs> but over the past year in Gotham and beneath the dome, I learned how. Well, I blame Don. Okay. But whatever. So do I'm you just want... gonna keep going on the fact that I to... think it's Metropolis, and you can correct me. Okay. Why don't you just pretend like you just you cut in and break in and cut? Because instead of me going off for another three minutes on okay. this, do you want to pull in? Do you want to blame? Uh... You should openly blame Donovan's review. I will blame Donovan's review. 
Okay. As a person living under the dome, you'd be okay with eating guinea pigs? Uh, me personally, never eat a guinea pig. It's the equivalent of a, a oversized fat rat. Never happen. Trust me, I work with garbage on a daily basis. You don't want to be working with guinea pigs and eating them. It's too many tiny bones. You pulled your mic again. I know, because I was laughing. Ooh, okay, I knew I was going to crack up what you were saying, so I muted. It's Have... funny how when you mute, I can still hear you, but oh, no. so, so faintly. Oh, well, at least it'll be on two channels so I can silence it, but <laughs> better than me laughing loudly. Bethany Snow is the character that was created for those new 52 back, right? the, uh, the last page couple things, yep. parts of Chantel, Chantel, Channel 52. <laughs> yeah. So the problem is that you have this character who did not even exist, but she's somehow making a cameo within the pages of these books that take place prior to the character even existing. What accent are you? <laughs> I don't know. I told you. I told you it was going to all oh, mess up. <laughs> okay, we're we're close to the end though, so you're you're doing a good job. Okay. But yes, but the thing is, what I was reading and I was thinking to myself, is this cutting back to when she had to go tinkle? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if this is when she had to go tinkle or she. <laughs> Again, you continue your okay. Three guinea pigs. Three <laughs> guinea pigs. Enough to fill I, the belly. Enough, well, you said there are too many tiny bones. But there's still enough to fill the belly. <laughs> oh my gosh. She just needs the right person to give her a firm hand. That's all. A firm hand? A firm hand. You, she needs someone to take control. That's what she's looking for. Oh my gosh. D Jim Jim clearly is not that man. No. He's not the man who can give her a firm hand. Oh dear. It's not him. Okay. She needs a man to take <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. She needs a man to help her. That's the reality. <laughs> I can't do it. You got so many voice cracks. Why? Why is your Irish accent so high in your range? No. You're like I. The, every time you speak, I want you to say about Lucky Charms. Oh, I'm going to. You should actually say that. Have you have you ever eaten uh, Lucky Charms? Okay. Uh, but anyway, uh, let me think. <laughs> she needs a firm hand. Yeah. <laughs>